Ow! Numpty. Well, then it's time for a trip to Moldova. I'm a doctor, too! <laughs> I often reflect on the fact that no man could ever love you. that in your pipe and smoke it welcome to up yours downstairs the podcast that's just drunk i'm kelly anakin and i'm tom schneider we are married i'll stick by you through thick and thin thin and thin more likely (laughs) i wish we were thin (laughs) 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 Uh, yeah uh. um (laughs) (laughs) we have three new exotic locations reporting in this week we have listeners in iraq Laos, or the Lao People's Republic, as it is officially known, and Moldova. Very exciting. Yes. We do have a brief update on our survey results. You still have time to weigh in if you like. Uh, We're going to cut the polls off at midnight on April the 30th. Right. Pacific time, so if we're on Eastern time, that's three in the morning. <laughs> uh, so in the lead, a pretty staggering lead, is Gosford Park. Uh, Julian Fellows Oscar-winning uh, screenplay. Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning. You uh, know what? Let's find out when we do it. <laughs> all right. Let's not Let's not uh, <laughs> steal our own thunder. Yes. Closely followed by a Tom Repeats History Fashion Backwards standalone episode. Big support for that. Yep. Uh, then followed by Manor House slash Edwardian Country House, which we're very excited about because it's one of our favorite things ever. Yes. And uh, Julian Fellows Titanic. So those are our four shows in the lead. Uh, still some time to vote, but those look like they will definitely be something that we do uh, pretty soon. And then, you know, we'll go through the rest of the results and uh, figure out what we want to do with that. Yeah. Now on to telegrams from our cousins. We actually had a lot of reactions to our episode with Ivan and Red from Boars, Gore, and Swords this week. We certainly did. Uh, the first one is from Cousin Sarah. She says, Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, sorry, but your April 16th podcast, Rupert Murdoch's Gotta Wet His Beak, was not my favorite. I've loved all your other episodes, but found the excessive chatter and off-topic comments with your guests on this one to be distracting. It really took away from the fun banter you two normally have. In spite of that, I do plan on listening to the Boars, Gore, and Swords podcast because Ivan and Red are funny and I love Game of Thrones. Your two previous episodes with guests were good. I especially like the one with Sam Roth. I must be a bit like Lord Grantham in that I don't like change. Keep up the great work, Cousin Sarah. Well, that's a very kind uh, criticism. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, it's just, you know, it's two different podcasting styles. Right. Their podcast is much looser than ours. Yeah. And, you know, they do do a lot of tangents and stuff. And, you know, it was fun for us. Yeah. Because, you know, it's we spend most of every day together. <laughs> what you hear, what you hear is just a slice of our reality every yeah. day. <laughs> Which, believe it or not, can get tedious. <laughs> uh, but we are in negotiations to bring Sam Roth back, actually. Yes. So we are hoping that that will happen uh, so keep your fingers crossed right. we we think we talked him into it but he was pretty drunk so we'll see if he remembers <laughs> we also have a response from cousin bran who says whichever numpty red or ivan who doesn't like scots all the navy blokes here say boo the scots kick his arse cousin yeah. bran yes no they do i don't understand number one why you would hate any race of people right like i think that went out of style a long time ago <laughs> and also the scots yeah i know the scots are have you seen the previews for brave <laughs> they will end you yeah with the flick of their wrist 
yeah, I I would not go up against the Scots, nor do I have any desire to, as I find them to be a perfectly fine group of people. I think they're delightful. Yeah. Bagpipes, golf. <laughs> uh, what else do they have? Mary, um, Queen of Scots? Scotch. Scotch. Which I am a big yes, fan of. Yes, you are a big fan of Scotch. Yes. Regardless, it's nice to know that we have the Navy blokes on our side if we ever need something taken care of. That's right. So, uh... Boom! <laughs> Boom to red from the from the Navy guys. That was red. That was the numpty, yes. which is now my favorite slang <laughs> ever. I'm just going to call everyone a numpty. <laughs> Boom! Numpty. <laughs> Next up, we have a very lengthy telegram and very informative from Cousin Lauren. Hello, dear cousins Kelly and Tom. I really enjoyed the latest podcast, but was amazed that you both didn't have a bigger cow over Lord Grantham getting busy with the help. I will pause here and say, I think we didn't have a cow because, like, of course he had a thing with the help. Like, <laughs> right. this is just your stock upstairs, downstairs kind of thing. So yes. I, I think we expected something like this to happen. It's true. And we will certainly be discussing it more in the course of today's episode. Cousin Lauren continues, of course, I know you both think rather poorly of him and maybe your low expectations of his behavior kept the shock and awe to a minimum. Anyway, here at our house, we left out a collective holler when Lord G gave into his baser instincts with Jane, the world's most annoying housemaid besides Ethel. But then I had to control my indignity because, like being defeatist, being monogamous is so middle class. <laughs> According to Gail McCall and Carol Wallace, authors of To Marry an English Lord, the social code of the Edwardian wife's class and era permitted seeking a soulmate outside the boundaries of marriage should she be willing to cast aside her middle class prejudices against such behavior and play by the rules. And the rules are as follows. Don't make a fuss. Never go public. Married ladies only. Nobleman could flirt with unmarried ladies, but never indulge himself with one. But servant girls were a separate issue, as we have seen from Lord Grantham's and Major Mustache's roguish behavior. <laughs> Keep the nursery well stocked. A woman who had not produced any children or had only daughters had no business entertaining other men. Mm. Sorry, McGee, you're out of luck. You can thank Miss O'Bangs for that. <laughs> The book goes on to detail all the ways that married couples might exercise their extracurricular interests, including easy off tea dresses and tea time visits that resulted in many third and fourth children, looking oddly similar to mummy's special friend, Viscount so-and-so, and people were taught from an early age never to comment on who a child resembled, lest they get folks thinking. I guess I am hopelessly middle class because I frankly was astounded at the amount of extramarital shenanigans going on in Edwardian England. But so many of those marriages were arranged like business mergers. I suppose it was bound to happen. But I thought Lord and Lady G were in love. They said so. <laughs> I guess when your wife gets outside interests and leaves you alone for luncheon, all bets are off. Anyway, I guess things were a little looser back then. And considering Baron Fellow's main characters like William McCordell and Gosford Park, who basically did nothing but molest the housemaids, we got off lightly there. Love the podcast and always look forward to it. But who is Mary Sue? I will answer your last question first. Uh, Mary Sue is a term that came out of fan fiction. Yes. Uh, of which... I'm sure there's much for this show, <laughs> but it is a character who is the sort of author proxy and basically doesn't necessarily have any real defining characteristics except that they always get what they want. And, you know, they're, they're sort of just, you know, they exist to live out the fantasy of the author in right. the given circumstances. So if the author wants to, say, make love to Captain Kirk, then the Mary Sue in the story will be the character that makes love to Captain yes, Kirk. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, you know, in, in our estimation, there are two Mary Sues in Downton Abbey, specifically for Julian Fellows, right. and they are Mr. Bates and Lord Grantham. Yeah. So that's your intro to Mary Sue-dom. Uh, <laughs> I would caution you against 
exploring fan fiction too deeply because you may be horrified. Well, you may be horrified (laughs) and then you might become the thing you hate. So that's all I'll say about that. (laughs) Next, we have a telegram from cousin Rachel. She says, hello, cousins, a little telegram to ask if anyone suspected Thomas in Mr. Pamuk's death. It seems to me that Thomas might have feared reprisal for hitting on the Turkish gentleman and spiked his drink right before letting him into Mary's room. Doesn't that seem in line with his character? Love the show, love the segments, and love that you know how very wonderful Maggie Smith really is. She has always been one of my favorite actresses. That is an interesting theory. It's a very interesting theory. I... I think it's sort of in line with his character. Right. But at the same time, I question his ability to get a hold of a poison. Right. Because there seemed to be, when Vera Bates died, there was a question of how she got a hold of the poison. Yeah. And that that was something not particularly easy to come by. Like, I didn't mm. think it would be that difficult. But I don't know if Pamuk would have taken a drink from Thomas at that point. Right. Well, and I also wonder to what extent an investigation of the cause of his death would have been done just because I know I'm well, I mean, I guess, you know, certainly Lord Grantham and the Turkish embassy could cover everything up yes. and keep anything from happening, you know, but I mean, he was young to die. It would have been, you know, well, and I think what's telling in the show is that Thomas seems horrified to find him dead. That's true. I think if Thomas had been in on it, because the first reaction that we get to Pamuk being right. dead is Thomas right. alone. No one else is around. And Thomas being Thomas, if he had killed him, I think he probably would have gloated a bit. <laughs> right. You know, like ashed on him or something. And, you know, <laughs> just kind of, you know, reveled in his his cleverness. Right, right. We're also assuming that Thomas is capable of creating a scheme and pulling it off successfully, <laughs> yeah. which there is no precedent for in this series. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's definitely an interesting theory. Yeah. Something to think about. But yeah. it seems it seems drastic. Right. Very drastic. Yeah. But yeah, so uh thoughts, please let us know if you have the same thought or if you uh have some mitigating circumstances that you think support this theory. Mm-hmm. We'd be interested in hearing. Yeah. Next up, we have something from Cousin Carly. Dearest Cousins Kelly and Tom, it is with this telegram, instead of my usual carrier pigeons, that I impart to you a piece of information that had me reaching for my smelling salts. When listening to this week's podcast, entitled Because Nothing Bad Rhymes with April, I was struck by your assessment of the evilness of Sir Richard Carlyle's room, especially because I thought that room looked quite familiar. Initially, I said to myself, they're shooting on Highclere Castle. Why would Baron Julian Fellows need to reuse a room that we've clearly seen before, especially one that was was used by the other evil lover of Lady Mary. But I was overcome with curiosity and popped in my DVDs to settle the score. Sure enough, the Maw of Hell rooms used by the Turkish gentleman, whatever his name is, and Sir Richard are one and the same. I have even attached the incriminating screenshots as proof. <laughs> it's the hideous wallpaper that really gives it away, that red-on-red pattern, but it is surely the same room, from the bed to the placement of the doors to the giant red curtains. What I find most disturbing, though, other than the fact that they made Sir Richard sleep in a dead guy's room, is that the room's decorations have been altered slightly. Take, for example, the shelf by the doorway and the table-side lamps. Is this changed because seven years have passed between the episodes and the Bachelor's Corridor has undergone a little redecorating? Or is it because Baron Fellows and his set decorators thought they could fool us by switching out some furniture? I am not fooled. On the other hand, maybe the reuse of the room was intentional. Well, spoiler alert, but it is clear that both Kamal Pamuk and Richard Carlyle are bad, bad news for Lady Mary. Instead of being angry at the tomfoolery of the Downton Abbey crew... 
I choose to believe that this was an Easter egg of sorts, a gift for obsessive Downton watchers like us to keep us on our toes. Maybe Carlisle will even come back in Series 3 and curse the curse of the Red Room will kill him. <laughs> we can only hope. In closing, I would like to warn fans of the show and Matthew Crawley to steer clear of the hideous Red Room. I would also like to thank you, my cousins, for the outstanding work you continue to do with this podcast. Looking forward to the wrap-up of Series 2 and beyond. Have a pleasant weekend, whatever that is. <laughs> no, and we had discussed that, I right. think. I don't know if it was on the podcast, but we had our suspicions. Right. <laughs> we we do have issues differentiating between the podcast and our real lives. As we previously point. alluded to. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but I you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they have limited use of the rooms at Highclere Castle. Agreed. Because presumably somebody's still living there. Right. You know, at least in name. Yeah, like caretaking or whatnot. Yeah. Well I mean I, I assume that the actual family is still there. Could I I'm not sure I don't know how that works. Regardless, I mean a film shoot is a huge, huge thing. Yeah. And for them to have use of all the rooms is impractical, not only for the owners or caretakers, but also for the crew. Right. Because, you know, there's all this equipment. I'm sure the wiring there isn't very good. They probably have to use a lot of, like, generators yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So, you know, I'm sure they're limited, you know, even just in the geography of the house mm-hmm. where they're actually able to, to film things. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's all uh, very interesting. We will post those photos for you so you can see for yourself (laughs) that it is indeed the evilest room at Downton Abbey. (laughs) Yes. We next have a telegram from Cousin Christina, who writes, Hi, Kelly and Tom. Just writing in to corroborate your theory that some of your new countries are your usual listeners downloading from exotic locales. If you had a download from Moldova last week and were missing your usual Ukraine download, I always assume there's only one, but I would be intrigued to know if there are more. It was just me on a business trip. If you're ever looking for a quiet former Soviet getaway, isn't everyone, I highly recommend Chisinau. It's a charming little city with great wine, although I hardly think the Dowager Countess would have approved of the music we had at dinner one night. On the plus side, it was live rather than being played on a Victrola. On the minus side, it was ABBA's greatest hits on pan flute. Really looking forward to your recap of Manor House. Yes, I insist that there will be one. Cousin Christina. Well, so do the cousins in general, so that's good. <laughs> yes. I really want to hear Abba's greatest hits on, plant, on pan <laughs> flute. I, uh, I feel pretty good about that. Well, then it's time for a trip to Moldova. Sounds great. <laughs> Next up, we have a long-awaited letter from the Dowager cousin Jackie. She says, sorry there have been no new poems recently. I like to say I was busy being generally awesome and the life of any given party, but we all know that's a filthy lie. <laughs> so I'll just go with something closer to the truth, along the lines of struggling with the daily chores of, like, eating and bathing. Then watching shitloads of Ken Burns documentaries on Netflix streaming after running out of episodes of The Wire on DVD. Then realizing I'm doing nothing with my life. Then getting into a shame spiral that can only be stopped by going to sleep and beginning anew the next day. Repeat is needed. But anyways, (laughs) onward and upward or whatever the hell. Your most recent episode provided me with a burst of inspiration. Behold the fruits of my labors, quality not guaranteed. So these are new uh, Downton haikus. And Cousin Jackie, we've all been there. (laughs) We have. We've all done that. Just hang in there. I recommend eating a lot of pizza. (laughs) That's all I can prescribe. I'm not a doctor. (laughs) But she says, Daisy, you're not dumber than a box of rocks sometimes. You deserve better. Next, plaster of Paris, not ideal for wedding cakes, Thomas, you asshole. (laughs) Lord G kisses maid who must then find a new job. Ye old glass ceiling. (laughs) To the Carson cave, there is polishing to do. A fork tarnishes. (laughs) That's my favorite one. Yeah, mine too. (laughs) 
Hooray, Matthew will rise again. Rejoice, Mary. Lavinia, Mary, Lavinia. Flower blooms in spring. (laughs) This final one is another special one for Sir Richard Carlyle. You are a huge dick. Dick, 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 dick. Dick, 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 dick. (laughs) That's it for now. I have a lot of work to do around the sofa, you feel? (laughs) Dowager Cousin Jackie. Actually, she signs it DCJ. Yes. So she has been watching The Wire. (laughs) She really has. (laughs) We next have a telegram from Cousin Holly, who writes, Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, Greetings from your American cousin in Virginia. I had been considering sending you a telegram for some time to say how much I enjoy your podcast, so I was terribly excited to hear your plea for input from any neurologist cousins. No, really, I jumped up and down because I happened to be a neurologist. It was funny to me that you brought this up while discussing fake Patrick, because I had just been thinking to myself what bullshit his amnesia slash I left my accent in the freezing waters of the Atlantic story was. I commonly see patients with some degree of amnesia, usually due to traumatic brain injury from car accidents, war injuries, that sort of thing, but have yet to see someone with the complete amnesia soap operas hold so near and dear to their heart. Usually patients are amnestic to a few days or weeks before the accident or have trouble laying down new memories rather than forget everything they know. I did a search of the medical literature to see if any similar cases of amnesia had been reported. I found a paper entitled Memories Aren't Made of This, Amnesia in the Movies, the gist of which can be summed up by this statement, quote, 51st Dates maintains a venerable movie tradition of portraying an amnesiac syndrome that bears no relation to any known neurological or psychiatric condition. My further research found that the most common cause of total amnesia is severe psychological trauma, like sexual abuse, where bad memories are suppressed. This would be the most likely explanation for Patrick's memory complaints, but it's very unusual to lose one's personal identity. And more importantly, a head trauma would not suddenly fix everything. The memory is not like the jukebox in Happy Days that suddenly turns on with a well-placed punch from the Fonz. There is the much-publicized foreign accent syndrome, or dysprody, in which patients who sustain a brain injury have a different accent afterwards. This is due to a change in the prosody, or rhythm, melody, intonation of speech, and is almost always associated with other symptoms of brain injury, like weakness on one side of the body or trouble speaking in general. This condition is extremely rare. Patients have no control over what accent they are perceived to have, so to not only develop a new accent, but conveniently one characteristic of where you were taken after your rescue from the Titanic stretches the bounds of belief. If I were to see Patrick in my clinic, my official diagnosis would be full of shit. I know this is the world's longest telegram, so feel free to cut any of it out. Much appreciation for your fantastic podcast and the entertainment they provide. Keep the snark coming. Your loving cousin, Holly. And that was a great telegram. Yeah, that's... Congratulations, you are cousin of the week. Absolutely. Cousin neurologist, Holly. No, and this is exactly what we were looking for. Yes. And... You know, I mean, you know, I wasn't aware how completely off base every amnesiac plot mm-hmm. I've ever seen was. Mm-hmm. But clearly, uh, this great device that storytellers <laughs> have been using for decades is, is not much of a device at all. Yeah. So I think then, you know, this definitely lends some credence to the idea that fake Patrick is fake Patrick. There are some holdouts out there who think he really uh-huh. is Patrick Crawley. I am not one of them. I really, uh, I really don't think that he is. Agreed. Yeah, but thank you. That was so informative and always very exciting when our pleas for information are answered. Indeed. So congratulations on Cousin of the Week, Holly. Enjoy it. Wear it well. <laughs>
All right, so I believe that just leaves one more order of business before we get into the recap. Indeed. And that is our character ceasefire. Yes. And uh, I believe this week we're going to go with Ethel. <sighs> going to regret all the ginger jokes I can't make. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll find a way. So I want to kick off this recap by saying we really miss the Laura Linney bashing. It's true. It's our own fault. We really shot ourselves in the foot by forgetting to record it out in Abbey. I do want to kind of blame PBS for listing all of their Masterpiece Classic stuff as Masterpiece Classic and not as the title of the thing. Right. But PBS seems to have a whole lot of other, like, long-standing problems. So <laughs> I doubt that's one that'll get fixed. Yeah. But I just, man, because we have the DVDs, and she does introduce briefly with her, Hi, I'm Laura Linney, and this is Masterpiece Classic. And I just, oh, those <laughs> dimples. They're so, oh, they make me so mad. <laughs> I also want to point out that I was watching the credits this time around, and all the care involved in owning a large house is why we rent, I think. Like, <laughs> that's it's, right. Ah, like, it's so much work. Yeah. Not that we would ever own a house that big, but even a house that's, like, twice as big as our current apartment, I would just be like, well, again? Yeah. With the dusting and the cleaning? Yeah. It doesn't seem like any fun. No. So we start off, everyone is in the Great Hall, and we can tell with the subtitles, we're in the middle of a conversation, and Cora is saying something about how, the fact that she does not remember her wedding. Hmm, uh, which maybe is, she has amnesia. It could be. Well, also, I think maybe she just doesn't remember anything for longer than 30 seconds. It's <laughs> like a goldfish. <laughs> Servants are bringing in the wedding gifts. Mick G tells Mrs. Hughes to display them in the drawing room, and Cousin Isabel says she isn't sure about displaying all the wedding gifts, that it looks greedy. Lavinia says she can't bear the disruption that she is causing to the Granthams. McGee calls her silly, despite the fact that, you know, she was totally on that side of things last episode. Yeah. Matthew is berating himself for still needing a stick to walk. Mary and Lavinia both tell him that, you know, it's it's fine. It really is, like, you weren't ever going to walk again. Right. Like, and I understand his, like, impatience or whatever. It's like, dude, seriously. Yeah. I mean, which is essentially what Lavinia says in a much classier fashion. Right. Also note that Matthew does continue talking to Mary when Lavinia is right there. Yeah. But he says he wants to make it up and down the aisle without assistance. And Lavinia says he only needs to make it up the aisle because when he is walking back down the aisle, he will have her to lean on. Aww. Which is such a nice thing to say. It is a really nice thing to say. Um, Isabel needs to leave for some reason. And Lavinia says she will... Meddling, would. I'm sure. <laughs> yes, she's off to meddle somewhere else. Lavinia says that she will accompany her. Matthew says that Lavinia is just sucking up to her, and Lavinia says that any bride who doesn't suck up to her husband's mother is a fool. Well, I guess I'm a fool then, <laughs> because I didn't and won't. That That is true. <laughs> Downstairs, Mrs. Hughes goes into the Carson cave and announces that Mrs. Bryant has written her a letter she didn't expect. Apparently, she killed Vera Bates. <laughs> Uh, the Bryants actually went to come back to Downton and see the baby, oh. Charlie, uh, who hopefully has come up with some socks. <laughs> Can you imagine uh, introducing that baby to those people without socks? Just That baby would be mortified. I am mortified for that baby. <laughs> but uh, Mrs. Hughes is worried about how the Bryants will behave since the last time. Miss, you know, She really means Mr. Bryant. Yes. Mrs. Bryant seems fine and yeah. a little meek. Uh, but, you know, she doesn't want to get Ethel's hopes up. Right. And, you know, Carson says she can't worry about Ethel. The child must be the main concern. And Mrs. Hughes agrees, although they come to it by different routes, uh, her being compassionate and nice and Mr. Carson being a jerk. Yeah. Yes. 
Carson Foley believes male baby greater than sign female adult. Mm-hmm. In one of the girls, Mary's room, I believe, uh, yes. Sybil t- tells Mary and Edith that she is going to announce her engagement that evening. <gasps> Whoa! Yes, it is a big shock. Mary, Edith, and Anna, all of them tell her that she should wait, uh, wait until after Branson has taken his journalist gig in Dublin before telling anyone, but Sybil, you know, is not listening. And I have to say, Mary does not, she is not doing a good job. No, con- she almost, she's like half-heartedly like trying to talk her out of it. Yeah. She's like, go listen to Anna if you won't listen to me. Yeah, she's just, and not even listening to Sybil at all. Like, yeah, Well, it's, it's also like, guess what, Mary? Listening to servants is what got her into this mess in the first place. <laughs> so maybe that's not the way to go. It's true. Well, and because, well, and, you know, Sybil's appealing to Anna, thinking that Anna's going to, like, be on her side. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the past, Anna has been more sympathetic to Sybil. Right. But not this time. Well, and just, you know, Anna knows which side of her bread the butter is on. Like, yeah. She's like, hmm, who do I want to please? These people that seem likely to continue employing me or this, this... one that's going to leave. Yeah, and be penniless. Yeah. Well, I mean, and she just says it's a big thing to give up your whole world, mm-hmm. which is true. Yeah, just ask Vera Bates. <laughs> but <I'm... laughs> But yes, she announces that Branson is going to be coming in after dinner so they can tell Pa... Yeah, and I love it because her, like, logic makes no sense because <laughs> Mary is deriding Branson for being the chauffeur. Right. Uh, well, because Sybil says that, it, you know, she hoped that they could all remain friends. And Mary's like, married to the chauffeur. <laughs> and Sybil's like, no, he's a journalist now. It sounds better for Granny. <laughs> and I like that, like, Granny's her big concern here. Yeah. She's, like, so, like, wigged out about Granny. I mean, like, look, in your grandmother's social hierarchy, there's landed nobility and everybody else is on the bot. Like, there's no yeah. differentiation between chauffeur and journalist. Well, I think she just, you know, respects Granny and doesn't respect Lord Grantham. That's a good point. As think, well she should. Right. She's correct. Thomas is pleading his case to Mr. Carson to, to let him stay at Downton. In the last episode, he had been saying to O'Brien he thought he could just stick around for a while, hang out. Yeah. But Mr. Carson tells him in no uncertain terms that Downton is not a hostel and their ears are ringing with his constant protestations that he's not a servant. And uh, Thomas begs Carson to let him stay because he has no money. And Carson says he's not surprised because Thomas has dabbled in the black market. So Mr. Carson, with his eyes and ears everywhere, has determined the cause of Thomas's major downfall. And Carson tells him just to get out and find a different place to stay, to which I say, go, Carson. Yes. I don't like your handling of the Bryant situation, but oh my God, (laughs) somebody needs to kick this guy out of Downton Abbey. Yeah. In the drawing room after dinner, Branson walks in. Lord Grantham says, yes. And Branson says, I'm here. And Lord Grantham thinks he's talking to him, despite the fact that he's looking at Sybil. And Lord Grantham's like, yeah, I can see that. And we're like, you are so oblivious. Yeah. It should be noted that in this episode, you know, we have a ceasefire on Ethel, but we've called in an elite firing squad to assassinate the character of Lord Grantham. Because in this episode, he is Grantham to the max. Yeah, it is... Yeah. It's appalling. Yes. Sybil goes over to Branson and has some cold feet. She says, they mustn't worry Granny. Uh, yeah. And like, she will outlive you all. She's Maggie Smith. <laughs> Agreed. I actually, I do like uh, just a cinematography note that as she comes over and they're having their little quick discussion, the shot is from behind them showing everyone else in the room and you do just get the sense of everybody like staring at them mm-hmm. and them being exposed which, right which i liked the way that was framed 
<laughs> Granny asks if anyone is going to tell her what's going on, or has she stepped through the looking glass? <laughs> Branson says that she has as much right as anyone to know. And she says, why don't I find that reassuring? Oh, Maggie Smith, thank you for coming back to us. Here, here. Down in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is stirring something and fussing about how much longer Mr. Carson is going to be. And this is why it's never worth trying to make food interesting in the servants' hall, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Because she is kind of at the beck and call of, every, you know. Right. Their dinner is at a certain time, but, you know, it's yeah. dependent on when everybody upstairs gets done. Mm-hmm. Daisy says she's had a letter from Mr. Mason, William's father, and that he wants to see her. And Mrs. Patmore says, you know, she should she should go. She yeah. should go hang out with him. Daisy, of course, disagrees. Yeah. The phrase she uses is, she's had a letter off old Mr. Mason, mm-hmm. which I just thought was interesting. I've read, I've read all the James Harriet books. I'm usually familiar with Yorkshire phrasings, <laughs> but uh, that one was new to me. All righty. Yeah. Back up in the drawing room, Lord Grantham is uh, unhappy. <laughs> he says that he can't believe that Mary knew about Sybil and Branson. Um, she says that she didn't want to cause a fuss if it was maybe going to blow over. Which I think is totally justified. Yeah. Like, who's it going to... I mean, again, she's kept, you know, her killer vagina a secret for this <laughs> long. And clearly this is not a man who deals well with... Anything. Any, any news at all. Just anything. <laughs> right. It's going to rain this afternoon. I forbid it. <laughs> uh, he, he accuses Branson. He says that you've been bowing and scraping and all the time you've been seducing my daughter, to which Branson says that he's never bowed or scraped, uh-huh. which is true. He is an arrogant git. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that uh, he hasn't seduced anyone and tells Lord Grantham to give Sybil some credit for knowing her own mind. Lord Grantham says, how dare you speak to me in that tone? And then the Dowager Countess asks Sybil what she has in mind. She says that she will stay through the wedding so as not to steal Matthew and Lavinia's thunder. Like, plan fail. Yeah. Like, you have totally stolen everyone's thunder. Yeah. Like, I understand her thinking, and I guess she is still kind of young and naive, but, like, come on. Like, this could have really waited till after their wedding. Agreed. And she says that she will then move to Dublin to which Cora, with the most horrified expression you have ever seen, says, and live with him? Unmarried? And uh, she says, no, she will stay with Branson's mother while the bands are read, and then set up house. The Dowager Countess wants to know what Branson's mother thinks, and if, if she must know, Branson's mother thinks that they are being very foolish. She says, well, at least we have something in common. Uh, uh. Upstairs and downstairs, coming together over mutual disapproval over class mixing. <laughs> Taylor's oldest time. Uh, Lord Grantham hasn't been getting enough attention for the last 15 seconds and <laughs> suddenly flies off the handle. <laughs> um, oh, and uh, Sybil says that she is not throwing away her life, as Lord Grantham says she is, and she is not going to change her mind. Yeah, and she says... Uh, you can't very well lock me up until I die. And the expression of Lord Grantham, Grantham's face is like, oh, I really thought I could. Yeah. He's he was, like, what? <laughs> that, that was my whole plan. <laughs> Shoot. And also in this scene, Sybil addresses Branson as Tom. Yes. Which I, I liked. Well, that is your name. It is my name. And before now, it's only been Thomas. And I'm glad there's a new Thomas that I like slightly better. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Down at Bastard House, Ethel tells Mrs. Hughes that she doesn't want the Bryants to see Bastard House, which I fully approve of, because that place is not attractive. No. You don't want them to see the squalor. 
but she is prepared to let them into Charlie's life, you know. And so Mrs. Hughes plans an above-board meeting on Monday at 4 o'clock. Okay, so mark your calendars. Uh, once again, the timeline of this episode, I think, is very wrong in a lot of ways. Right. Because uh, Matthew and Lavinia's wedding, we later learn, is supposed to be on Saturday. This meeting is supposed to happen on Monday. Right. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I say <laughs> meeting happens, I think, on a Friday, like the day before the wedding was supposed to happen. Yeah. Because at the very beginning, Mary tells Matthew that he's still got three days. Right, right. To, to not have to use his walking stick. Yeah, and I have to say, Julian Fellows, not that hard no, to get this stuff like, to add up. This is basic line editor stuff. Yeah. And... I don't I don't understand it. Yeah. But anyway, we're just saying let's all just pretend that this all takes place in Narnia and there's no days of the week. <laughs> uh, down in the servants' kitchen, Thomas lights up as O'Brien says that he can't have expected to stay forever at Downton, but he says he wasn't expecting to get booted out. Not sure why he wasn't expecting that. And he isn't hopeful of finding a job because he's got a hand like a Jules Verne experiment. He must have been borrowing novels from the Dowager Countess's library. Yes. Branson comes in, and Anna says to him that she knows it wasn't easy last night. Daisy, having, you know, who lives in the basement, <laughs> literally. She's a house elf. <laughs> she is. Uh, asks, you know, what Anna's talking about, and Branson announces that he and Sybil will be getting married. Carson comes in, who, by the way, was furious uh-huh. in the drawing room when that whole thing went down, and he asks Branson if he has no shame... And Branson says that in this matter, yes, he has no shame. He is proud that Sybil has found him worthy of her love, and he's not going to apologize to anyone. Carson forbids him to keep talking, and when the servants start to talk about it again, he forbids the topic. He has asked for silence, and he will get it. Uh, like Earl, like Butler, I guess. <laughs> it's like, this is the worst thing that has happened since the cheerful Charlie's got bumped off the bill by Reggie Waltrip and his performing poodle Polly. <laughs> And Branson will be staying at the Grantham Arms until Lady Sybil can come get hitched. Yep. No, it's I I know why they did it, but I would have been interested to see the servants' reactions had Carson not come in. Yeah. Because Right. Well, I mean, and I think you see like a flash of it, but like they don't know how to react. Yeah. They're very surprised, obviously. Yeah. Um because, you know, this is something that had to be kept I mean, secret, obviously. it'd be like if your coworker came into the office one day and was like, oh, by the way, I'm going to marry the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud to be worthy of his love. <laughs> yes. It's very jarring. Up in, I think it's the Great Hall. The geography here, I feel like we're either seeing rooms that we haven't seen before or rooms that are decorated differently. Well, I think, and also from different angles, Uh I think, sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the Dowager Countess comes in and she sees Lavinia, Matthew, and Mary playing a record on a gramophone, which is a wedding gift from Lavinia's cousins, the very latest in musical technology. It was the uh, iPod of the (laughs) post-World War I era. The Dowager Countess says to be very careful when lighting the blue touch paper near it, uh, because she thinks it looks like some sort of firearm. Blunderbuss, perhaps. Perhaps. 
The Dowager Countess then comes into the drawing room where Edith is arranging Lavinia's gifts. She says she's left some room up front for jewels because she knows Papa will be getting her something. And the Dowager Countess says that she will be as well, though she's so slight, a real necklace would flatten her. Uh, (laughs) I don't think she's that slight. I think... I think she's just blonde. I think she's blonde, and she's sort of, like, played as slight and dressed. Yeah, like, that's true. You know, she she talks slight. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, the Dowager Countess asks after Sybil. He's, she's talking with Lord Grantham, so we can... That's probably going well. Um, and she says that she had thought that Mary had made a mesalliance, but Sir Richard is practically a Habsburg compared to Branson. Uh, uh, so, inbred? <laughs> Perhaps. And she's going to go off and, and lend Lord Grantham a hand. She tells Edith that her turn will come. Edith says, will it? Or is she just going to be the maiden aunt? Isn't this what maiden aunts do? Well, that make out farmers. <laughs> right. But she says, not to be defeatist. The Dowager Countess says, not to be defeatist. It's very middle class. It's true. I am defeatist all the time. <laughs> As am I. And I do just wanted to give a credit to Edith in this scene. You know, season one, Edith would have been like very whiny and off-putting about it. Mm-hmm. But she's sort of like... She really has matured. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've warmed up to her. I mean, particularly this second time around. Yeah. Because when yeah. we first watched the series, we watched it all in very close succession. Right. So the time between hating Edith and not hating Edith was like a day and a half. Right. Like, at this point, you know, when we saw this scene, like, three hours ago, we'd seen her making out with that farmer. Like, yeah. we watched yeah. them, like, really in a row. We were like, boo! <laughs> farmer ho! <laughs> not the hoe that normally farmers use. <laughs> right. Anyway. <laughs> In Sybil's room, Sybil is telling Lord Grantham that his threats are hollow because she doesn't care about being received at court. She doesn't care about being received in London. None of that matters to her. And Lord Grantham cannot even fathom this. I mean, he literally has no idea that other ways of life exist. I mean, this is a man who said it was strange that his cousin should be a doctor. Right. If he's not sitting around doing weird Lord stuff, he can't imagine what other people do with their time. Yeah. Um, the Dowager Countess comes in and she says she hopes she's interrupting something. And Lord Grantham says that, you know, not really. He's not getting anywhere. And the Dowager Countess tells Sybil that this sort of romance is all very well in novels, but in reality it can be very uncomfortable. Which I think is telling because really that's the, the epitome of British aristocratic life. Mm-hmm. They aspire to a lack of discomfort. I mean, that's why all of the complicated rules. Right, right. The idea is that they can completely eliminate human discomfort. Yeah. Well, and it's... Or at least social discomfort. Yeah, social discomfort is privileged over physical discomfort. Clearly, McGee has called them out in the past for enjoying (laughs) physical discomfort. Yes. But all, all in the service of everybody, you know, getting along smoothly. Yes. She does say that Branson has many fine qualities, and Lord Grantham is... And she just stops. He's like, no, he's a good driver. And she would know. She's been driven hither and yon by this guy yeah. for seven years or something. Yeah. I mean, he's been around for... It's amazing to me that they kept this on the DL this long. Yeah. Like, it's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, also, again... Julian Fellows' problems with narrative economy. <laughs> right. But Sybil makes an offer, a bit of an ultimatum. She says she will stay at Downton for one week through Matthew's wedding. Then she will take off and marry Branson, and she will welcome any visitors for the wedding and beyond in Dublin. Lord Grantham, again, is sputtering and saying absolutely not. And the Dowager Countess wisely counsels him not to say anything. He's going to have to retract. Mm-hmm. 
No, and just really, the Dowager Countess is so very pragmatic. I think this is just like her at the height of her powers. Yeah. You know, she she thinks Sybil is wrong. She right. says out. You know, she says she's because Lord Grantham says she's being very rude to her grandmother, and she says no, no, no. She's not being rude. She's just wrong. Right. Because she absolutely agrees with anyone's desire to feel something strongly. Yeah. Oddly enough, yeah. I mean, she just you know she she wants people to say what they mean, mm-hmm. uh, despite what she said to Rosamond in the previous season. Yeah. But you know. Well, and she's been around forever. She's mm-hmm. seen everything. This this isn't a surprise to her mm-hmm. particularly. You well, know. she knew something was going on. She right. didn't know with whom. Mm-hmm. But she thought Sybil seemed to be sort of rejecting her upbringing. And yeah. she, she tried to, to head it off at the past. But, you know, there's only so much... You know, she has been around forever. But at the same time, you know, she's not as stuck in her ways as Lord Grantham. But she really can't conceive of this lifestyle either. Right, right. Um... Anyway, uh, Lord Grantham says that if Sybil goes through with this plan, he's not giving her any more money and her life's going to be very different. And she says, well, bully for that, which is fantastic. And yes. again, I don't think it comes through as well as it could because as we've moaned and lamented <laughs> so many times, this relationship is probably the most interesting one. Mm-hmm. You know, we have mixed feelings on Branson. Many of our listeners do as well. But I, again, part of that is because he's been given not enough screen time with Sybil. We haven't been able to see them. Particularly in the second season. Uh Uh-huh. But they just, they both seem to understand how difficult this is going to be. And they're prepared for it. I don't think they have any illusions. I mean, Sybil just says she had hoped that they would all be able to remain friends. Yeah. But she's clearly allowed for the possibility that they will reject her. Yeah. And she, I mean, that's the thing that she struggled with all season. Right. Right. You know, she knew that that was that was the risk she would have to take for this to work, and mm-hmm. she decided it was worth it. Uh, in the Carson cave, Mrs. Hughes brings in tea, and Carson is very ill, sitting at his desk. She says that he needs to go to bed, and he he won't. The Crawleys are coming, and and he he can't do it, but she insists, and he says that she should call in Mr. Molesley to help. Because the war is over, it's no longer an excuse for failing to keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. And appearances means a man in charge. Yes. And Mrs. Hughes agrees as long as he will go to bed. Up in her dressing room, McGee ex- exhales laboriously, wearing a really stunning number. She's worn it many times before, but it's sort of like a black dress with this netting. It's not quite fishnet, but it's just it's very striking. Mm-hmm. Oddly, O'Brien asks if she's too warm. They could change out of that dress, which... Has a lot of netting, but, you yeah, know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, she says she's fine, and then O'Brien exits the scene. Lord Grantham is there, being all, you know, leaning up against uh, mantle pieces and being melodramatic. He thinks Sybil is ridiculous, but McGee suggests that they've overlooked who Sybil really is. Because, you know, McGee is saying, oh, you know, we, we spoiled her with the mad clothes and the nursing. And McGee's like, no, she's a really good nurse. Like, yeah. you saw it. And he rejects all of this and says, if you're turning American on me, I'll go downstairs. Which, dude, you're born an American. You can't just turn it on and off like a faucet. Yeah. I also like that he still remembers the mad clothes, which presumably means the harem pants that she wore once Mm -hmm. and were never seen again. No, all of her clothes have been fairly sedate. Yeah. But she wore pants once, and he has never forgotten. <laughs> he wrote it in his diary. Dear diary, <laughs> today my daughter wore pants. I'm considering suicide. <laughs> 
Yours, LG. <laughs> Bates, come proofread this for me. <laughs> some side hall near the dining room, presumably, Anna explains to Molesley the complicated wine process, all the different wines, when they're served when, when they're decanted. Uh, it's a very involved. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing I thought of, Molesley says, oh, it's a wonder they even get up the stairs. And Anna says, oh, you know, none of them really drink any of it, which to me is like, you know, this has to be expensive wine. Mm-hmm. Like, that like kills me. That yeah, I'm not true. even. I'm not a nonophile. Like I just right. Although, anything expensive, I have a hard time throwing out. I will say. I mean, I think you know. There's enough of them there that if it's really only one bottle of each that they're each just drinking a little bit of, like they may be using. They may be calibrating the amount of wine served so that they're not really wasting. That's that probably much. true. I also just wonder though if they're not drinking a whole lot of any of it. Do they just like throw all the extras in a bucket and make like? toilet sangria with it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm very curious about that, yeah, so yeah. hopefully I can find the answer someday. Mrs. Hughes is coming downstairs with McGee. McGee is asking if she'll have to see the Bryants when they come, and Mrs. Hughes is like, oh, God, no. Uh, yeah. And McGee is like, thank God. Yeah. But she has another little episode. Uh, she's a little unsteady and, and grabs onto the banister, and Mrs. Hughes, having seen that Carson is ill, asks if, if McGee should be downstairs, and McGee says, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. In the kitchen, Thomas is asking Mrs. Patmore why he can't help out in the dining room. And uh, Mrs. Patmore pretty much puts him in his place mm-hmm. and some revels in his fall from, you know... Well, he says he just wants to be useful. Right. And she says, being useful is not something we associate with you, Thomas. <laughs> and that's pretty great. Yeah. She's, way to go. Way to go, Mrs. Patmore. Yes. And she's very pleased with herself. Well, she's, she says, uh, fear... Fear has an incredible effect on a man or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think she's proud that she was able to play a role in, you know, ruining him. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, you got to figure all the servants who are like, hey, way to buy <laughs> that black market stuff off Thomas and shame him because, oh, my God, we hate that guy. Yeah. If it was possible for us to buy things for people, we would buy you something. <laughs> but it's not, so we won't. <laughs> Up in the, you know, wine prep area... Anna checks in with Molesley. He is tasting the wine. He wants to make sure that he is serving the lighter white wine before the heavier or something like that. Jane can't understand why. She's like, what? It's a white wine. Just shut up. Yeah. Which is the first thing she said that I've agreed with. And he says, well, I believe in starting as you mean to go on. And I'm like, you mean to go on? Like, Carson's going to get better. Yeah, he is. Have you still not... Are you still holding out for this whole, like, oh, I'm going to marry Anna and be the butler at Downton. (laughs) I don't know why Mosley is a ghost (laughs) in this hypothetical. I mean, he is, you know, pretty ghost-looking. He is pretty ghost-looking. Up at dinner, uh, Sybil is there, and the Dowager Countess is very glad that she came. She thought perhaps she would have a tray in her room to avoid awkwardness. And Lord Grantham says, perhaps she should have done, because he's four. (laughs) Sybil brings up the fact that she might have eloped like a thief in the night once, but Mary and Edith talked her out of it. And Mary and Edith are like, Exner, elopement, why are you talking about this? Quit dragging us into this crap. We still get our inheritance, right? (laughs) Right? I mean, more so. Yeah, it's true. Isabel decides it's time to meddle, (laughs) but Matthew shoots her down and says, Mother, this is not something about which we should have an opinion. Uh, And he really is uh, exhibiting himself to be a real true successor to Lord Grantham. Like, I'm not saying he's wrong. I don't think Isabel should be sticking her nose in here, per se. But, man, he is real supercilious when he tells her that. Yeah, he's like, let's... 
It's not her place to have an opinion. Let's just be glad nothing's distracting from my wedding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mosley is just clinking glasses all over the place. He looks really nervous, and Matthew asks if he's all right. And Mosley's like, <laughs> basically. Yeah. McGee says she is not all right and asks Lord Grantham to please excuse her. They ask if they should send for the doctor, and she says she doesn't want to bother him because it's so late. And uh, Anna mentions that Dr. Clarkson is coming to examine Carson anyway, so they'll just send him in to see McGee when he gets there. Right. And Before he sees Carson. Yes, Let's clearly. Let's be clear. Lord Grantham heroically <laughs> volunteers to sleep in his dressing room. <sighs> what a man. What a man, what a man, what a mighty dick man. <laughs> mighty, mighty. <laughs> Downstairs somewhere, Anna corners Bates for a little walk and talk. She says she is going to marry him, period, end of story, uh, that he has to go to Ripon, get a special license, no matter how much it costs, because if Lady Sybil can sh- do what she's doing, Anna is at least as strong as her, and whatever's happening to Bates in the future with this whole murder investigation, she is not going to be left out of it. She's going to face it with him as his wife, as his next of kin, mm-hmm. and he cannot stop her. Then Jane comes in because their 45 seconds is up and tells Anna to come quick. That is the special license that we mentioned in a previous episode where it wasn't required for them to live in the same county or have the bands read. Uh, so this is, you know, this is your Vegas type wedding yes. that they're getting in Ripon. It's a Retina Green type wedding. <laughs> yeah. Up in the wine prep area, Mr. Molesley is moaning over the decanters. <laughs> so Anna takes over wine service. Lord Grantham says he had worried that Mosley had joined the Temperance League. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, how droll. I wasn't worried that anything had happened to him, you understand. <laughs> Just that he'd become a revolutionary or something. But now Lavinia's having a turn. She's gotten very quiet and Mary notices. Lord Grantham is surprised at how many people are so ill, which I'm like, really? Your wife name-checked the Spanish flu in the previous episode. Were you not paying attention? Uh, no. He wasn't. Okay. Lavinia asks if she can go lie down for a while, and Mary takes her up to Mary's room. And then Isabel wonders if they should take Lavinia home, goes up to help. And I I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. But maybe you shouldn't let people with the Spanish flu in your room. (laughs) Well, the... The thing I noted, yeah, I mean, you know, that's true, but... I mean, I guess they all would have been exposed regardless, but... Yeah, I mean, you did just share dinner with her. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Matthew. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) The Dowager Countess unhelpfully says, Wasn't there a masked ball when the cholera broke out in Paris? Half the guests were dead before they left the dance floor. Lord Grantham gets the only line that I enjoy yes. in this whole episode, which is, thank you, Mama, you've cheered us all up no end. <laughs> which, seriously, they're not having a masked ball. They're just having an awkward, annoying family dinner. Yeah. Like, are you saying, should we throw a masked ball? <laughs> if so, I'm going as uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Good Who would plan. you go as? Uh, I guess for Walter Raleigh, then. All right. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> Cousins, make this happen. <laughs> we'll bring the cholera. You do the rest. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes is talking to Dr. Clarkson. She says she will take him to see Carson and Mr. Molesley. Uh, and Mary and Isabel let Clarkson know that Lavinia has also taken ill, although she is sleeping, so they don't want her to be disturbed. And Isabel will tag along to see Carson. 
leading to the best shot of Dr. Clarkson ever, which I really want as a gift. He just, like, he's given up even trying to mask his irritation with Isabel being like, I'm a doctor too. Also, he has given McGee aspirin and cinnamon and milk, which my doctor never prescribes me cinnamon and milk. That sounds delicious. You can have some tonight if you want. (laughs) That's true. Back down in, we think it's the Great Hall where the gramophone is. Yeah, and that's this is what I was specifically saying. I think we're just seeing it mm-hmm, from a because different... Because we've never seen the fireplace down there head on, and we're seeing it. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. BT dubs. Uh, Matthew's putting a record on the gramophone, and Mary comes down the stairs, and she sees him while a very sad song plays, and she is uh, very sad. She's been having to kind of hold it together through all this madness, and it's clearly taking its toll. But she goes down and asks where everyone is, and he says that uh, the Dowager Countess went home, and he's just waiting for Lavinia and, the, and Isabel to be ready to go. Mary tells him that Lavinia will have to stay at Downton until morning. Mary says she's not heard the song that's playing, and Matthew says it's from a show that flopped, Zip Goes a Million or something, which, bully for the theater-going London public on flopping that stinker. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, anyway, so he, he offers his arms out, and they start dancing. And Mary says, we were a show that flopped, which, uh, this scene is so well written. This is what makes us so mad about Julian Fellows. Yeah. Because he's clearly capable of writing really good stuff, Mm -hmm. which this scene is. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he apologizes and goes like cheek to cheek with her, apologizes some more. He tells her about the Dowager Countess telling him to marry her. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just so awful. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're both apologizing a ton. Mm -hmm. You know, Mary says it was her fault, which, you know, it was. Yeah. No matter what you say. (laughs) But he says, you know, he couldn't throw over Lavinia after she had agreed to sacrifice her life for him, no matter how much he wanted to. Yes. And then they make out. Yeah. And they get out the 360 dolly. They mean business. They do like three revolutions. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, it's so well, everything, it's well written. It's well acted. I mean, the, their relationship throughout the series has just been really mm-hmm. well done. And it's well staged because they're circling as they dance and the camera's circling around them. So we're constantly seeing different, you know, their faces mm-hmm. alternately and, it's, it's really good. It's very well done. Yeah. But of course, all good things must come to an end. <laughs> and Lavinia comes down and interrupts them. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't appear to have seen anything. Right. But Mary tells Lavinia she won't be going home. Dr. Clarkson has to stay at Downton and she'll go and organize a room. By which she means she will go and tell Mrs. Hughes to yes. organize a room. But she and Matthew are really bad at lying. They look super <laughs> guilty. Yeah. Uh, Lavinia's down like wrapped in a, in a shawl. And Matthew asks how she's feeling, and she says she feels like a nuisance. And he says, oh, you could never be that. And she says, I'm serious. Promise never to let me be a nuisance. Promise to never let me get in the way. Yeah. Yeah, it's very... Zoe Boyle is amazing. Yeah. I think she's really underserved by the way they wrote this character. But she just knocks it out of the park. Yeah. No, I think... If anybody watching it again the second time around, I... My opinion of her improved so oh, much. Oh, absolutely. More. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew I knew where everything was going, mm-hmm. so I think that helps. Yeah, but she just she does such a wonderful job. Mm-hmm. So well done, Zoe Boyle. Yes, down in the the, the servants' hall, 
O'Brien is there. She's volunteering to sleep in McGee's room with her to, to sort of keep an eye on her. Dr. Clarkson takes a look at Molesley, who's just sitting on the table, like, with his head leaning on his hand. Uh, he just takes a sniff at him and says that you don't need to worry about Mosley. He'll be fine in the morning. The rest of them have Spanish flu. He's just drunk. <laughs> the Mosley story. Yes. At, at which he helpfully gives, like, a drunken mutter in his hand. He sure does. Yeah. It's uh, hilarious. Uh-huh. Which now brings us to one of everybody's favorite times on the show, one of our recurring segments called Tom Repeats History. So take it away, Tom, our man with medical moxie to spare. <laughs> okay. So I will be talking about the Spanish flu, uh, which is obviously a big thing going on in this episode. And I Is will- it from Spain? That Oh, I'm going to answer that question. Okay. Just you wait. It was a an unbelievably large epidemic. The estimates range from 50 to 100 million people died of it worldwide, which is 3 to 6% of the world population at the time. So I mean, to give you an idea, the population of America at this time was approximately 100 million. So at the upper end, the entire population of America equivalent died. Okay. It spread everywhere in the world, from the Arctic to Pacific Islands, everywhere. There was only, like, the one biggest region was, like, this island in the Amazon Delta that did not report an outbreak of it. But everywhere else, it it affected. And what was so unusual about the Spanish flu, as opposed to other flu epidemics, was that it made... The (laughs) tapas. It was not the tapas. It was that it mainly killed the young and healthy, uh, whereas, wow. yeah, flu usually, of course, affects the very young and the very old. And there's a couple reasons why that was. One reason that old people were generally spared from it is believed to be that anyone that was old had been through the Russian flu epidemic in 1889 and thus had immunity. But the primary reason was that the specific way that the flu killed was through what is called a cytokine storm, which is a badass name but what it means is an overactive response from the immune system. So it's actually the immune response that kills you rather than the virus. And therefore, the people who had strong immune systems were actually more likely to be killed by the wow. Spanish flu. Right. That's like a stealth flu. It is. Yeah. Why was it called the Spanish flu? Which is an interesting question. It did not start in Spain, nor was Spain especially hard hit by it. But... It started during while World War I was still going on. It started at the beginning of 1918. And because Spain was a neutral country, it was the only major European country that wasn't censoring its news. Therefore, all the other countries were having it just as bad, but it wasn't getting into any of the papers because it would decrease morale. Mm -hmm. But Spain reported it freely, and thus everybody thought of it as a Spanish thing. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was very interesting to me. I did not know that. Nobody's actually quite sure where it started. There's different theories. There's no Spanish flu, Maria. (laughs) There's not that people know of. One popular theory is an army base in Kansas, which is actually, I had heard that as being definitive, but that's apparently very disputed. Other people think uh, the port of Brest in France. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it's it's funny. Um, And... uh, Other theories include China and Austria. With some people, there is a theory that it actually helped a little bit end World War I. They believe that it started in Austria and was more virulent there at first, and thus in Austria and Germany, and thus helped the Allies win the war. Although, again, because there was so much censorship going on, it's very hard to tell. Hmm. 
Yeah, it and it was very the whole thing happened very quickly. It overall lasted from January of 1918 through the end of 1920, but really it was primarily last half of 1918, first half of 1919 and then it was pretty much over. Um, it said that it killed more people in 24 weeks than the AIDS epidemic has killed in 24 years. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, and the the, the serious part of it uh, started in August of 1918. And what seems to have happened is that before that, it was a pretty standard flu epidemic that wasn't terribly deadly, but that a more severe and deadly strain started in August. That doesn't usually happen with flu outbreaks because usually when there's a flu outbreak – the people who have mild forms of it stay out, keep going to work, keep spreading it. The people at the severe form stay home, and thus the milder version has sort of an evolutionary advantage. But in wartime, the people who had mild versions stayed on the front. The people who had severe versions got packed onto crowded trains and sent back to crowded army hospitals and actually traveled more than the people with the mild versions. So the severe version actually had an advantage and that's that's what made it so deadly. But like I say, near, actually near the end of 1918 and into 1919, there was a, a quick decline in the amount of mortality uh, from it, uh, which is the usual case with these. Anything that's too severe, it doesn't spread because people die before they spread it. And so after a while, the, the less severe form sort of became predominant again, and it, and it tailed off. There is actually one interesting theory that I wanted to point out, which is that there's a belief that overprescription of aspirin may have increased the mortality rate. The theory is that um, there was a spike after the Surgeon General and the Army started recommending extremely high doses of aspirin as, as recommended in treatment. And I, I mentioned this because, in fact, Dr. Clarkson was prescribing aspirin. And not only that, but it had just gone off patent from Bayer. It had the patent before. Uh, but because it had just gone into the public domain, a whole bunch of pharmaceutical companies were racing to produce it and make money off of it. And so they were also encouraging it to be overprescribed. And they did not yet know about uh, Reyes syndrome and other, other problems with overdoses of aspirin. Um, so that's, that's just a theory. People aren't certain. But it was one that interested me. It was referenced no, in this episode. No, that's very interesting. So. Yeah, and uh, it's it's generally been forgotten, you know, not entirely obviously, but for something that killed 50 to 100 million people, because it happened at the end of World War One, it sort of just got lumped in people's mm-hmm. minds with World War One, and not as being really sort of a separate thing that was incredibly deadly. Wow, and you know, and I rarely say this, but I think Julian Fellows does a really nice job then depicting it here, mm-hmm. because I think we are in the former half of 1919 here. Right. Yeah, but I mean that you know everything in the show is internally consistent with everything you've mentioned. Yeah. So. Yeah. Agreed. Which is not always the case. No, and I'm I'm very curious how it got brought into the house. I mean, mm-hmm. there's any number of people who could have brought it in. Right. Right. You know, it's not as if they're they're isolating themselves, but it also makes sense that they would have gotten it toward the tail end of it because they mm-hmm. are removed from the major city centers. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Tom Repeat's History. Thank you, Tom. You're I'm welcome. I'm going to be sure to get a flu shot this year. <laughs> in the hallway outside Lord Grantham's dressing room, uh, Jane runs into him. He was looking for Bates to tell him to wake him up early. But Jane says that she'd been hoping that she would have a chance to speak to him because Freddie, the mathematical pauper, got into rip and grammar. So whatever Lord Grantham said to the headmaster worked. I imagine it went a little something like, uh, look here. 
I need this young boy to get into ripping grammar because I want to rip his mother's grammar. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying, old boy. <sighs> I'm saying if you don't let this chap in, I'm going to have you killed. As far as I'm aware, I can do that. Ah, very well. Good, good. <laughs> pip, pip. Let's have some tea. That's my impression of the headmaster of Rip and Grammar. <laughs> Lord Grantham manages to make everything that's going on about himself. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. You know, everything with Branson, everything with the Spanish flu. It's all conspiring to make Lord Grantham have a bad day. <laughs> but then they go into his dressing room to make out. Yeah. Uh, so this- I... By the way, this is exactly why he and Cora share a bedroom. Mm-hmm. Because the first night that he goes off on his own, bam. Ripping grammar all over the place. <laughs> In Carson's bedroom, he is, uh, you know, sick. And uh, he's worried about Mrs. Hughes being able to handle everything. Which I call bullshit, Carson. Mrs. Hughes handles everything. Agreed. Like, that one situation with Ethel notwithstanding, that was Ethel's fault. Yes. That was someone else's fault. <laughs> that was not Mrs. Hughes's fault. It was Major Bryant's fault. It was Major Bryant's fault. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, Dash. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in his partial defense, he is. There is a wedding happening. True. Is his concern, which is a big deal. But Mrs. Hughes says that's uh, no, probably not going to be happening. He also suggests that Molesley come on on a more permanent basis until he's well. And Mrs. Hughes says that would not be a good idea because neither her patients nor Mr. Molesley's liver could stand it. <laughs> and I, I love her bald contempt for Mr. Molesley. Yeah. Like, this wasn't present in the previous episodes where he was coming in to help. Right. But he has just fallen so far in her estimation. Yeah. And I mean, rightly so. Come on, dude. Well, and Seriously. I, I don't think he got drunk intentionally. And, I mean, yes, but it doesn't, like, I don't right. think there's, you know, there's no excuse. Correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, because he got real he drunk. He got really, really drunk. That's not tipsy. Like, yeah. Anyway. In the dressing room of adultery, <laughs> Lord Grantham and Jane are totally making out. They're sucking face. Yeah. Like, Sweet Valley High style. Yeah. <laughs> it's serious. Bates knocks on the door, which Lord Grantham interrupts and says, What is it? Not doing anything in here untoward? While Jane is standing, you know, behind the door, Bates is like, I just wanted to know when you wanted to wake up. And like, I usually come and check on for, yeah. like, this is my job. I'm doing my job. Yeah. And Lord Grant is like, you know, seven. And Bates says, very good. And he's like, you could have just put a sock on the handle like we did in the army. <laughs> Yeah, like Bates. Bates I th- knows something's up. He knows something's up, and but I mean, like the thing about it is, Lord Grantham could tell Bates as he far as that goes. He could tell Bates. Bates I mean, you know, people told their servants a lot of shit back then. Yeah, like they told them so many things mm-hmm. that they probably shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, like this family is relatively circumspect. Yeah, I mean, you know, Anna knows the business of the three girls, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is down to age. Yeah, you know, yeah. O'Brien knows everything about McGee. Yeah, because McGee can't keep her mouth shut. <laughs> uh, she's like, O'Brien, I don't have a brain, so I need to have you be my auxiliary brain. I have the Spanish flu. <laughs> so yeah, so Bates Bates goes off, and Lord Grantham says that he is being unfair to Jane. He's being unfair to everyone, and I'm like, You're being unfair to rhymes with Schmora. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, McGee's name does not come up. But I'm she- being really unfair to Sybil. <laughs> I just yelled at her for this very thing. It's true. You really did. But she says she wants to be with him, 
and he wants her, but life isn't fair. He wishes everything were different, and she doesn't want him different. She is she on drugs or something? <laughs> like, why does she See, like him? And and here's I, because there's a lot of jaders out there, and I am not one of them. I don't want to go to. I'm not team Jane by any means, but I think, and and I think it's because not we don't really know much about her. And so I've sort of constructed a backstory for her in which, you know, she has been married and she no longer has, you know, any intimate physical contact, which is a loss. She's working at this place. She never meets anybody else. Mm -hmm. And here's Lord Grantham, who's not the ugliest man in the world. He's rich and powerful and classy. And she got a crush on him. You get crushes on people that you work with sometimes. And, I, you know, I'm fine with that. Like, Lord Grantham is another story right being married and her boss and everything like that but well that's the thing that i wonder because in in the letter that we were reading from cousin lauren she was talking about how you know clearly people could just diddle the maze and that was fine Mm -hmm. i just i wonder from just a social perspective what people's view of that was yeah, I mean, to me, I just sort of assume, and I don't have anything to base it on, but I just assume that that would be very, like... Frowned upon. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's it's one thing to have an affair with somebody within the sort of social constraints of your of your class. Right. But, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Up in McGee's bedroom, Mrs. Hughes wants to know what she can do to help. O'Brien asks for some ice to help bring her fever down. Mary is in the room and tells Mrs. Hughes that Sir Richard is coming down to help and to tell Mrs. Patmore and also to prepare some rooms for him and his valet. Yes. Richard's going to help? Like, is he going to shake the flu out of her? Like, what? <laughs> I don't get that. He's uh, doing an expose about the Spanish flu in British manor houses. <laughs> Lord Grantham walks and uh, towards and enters the Grantham arms. Jauntily. Yes. As if he's got not a care in the world. <laughs> By the way, we see the sign of the Grantham Arms, which has a coat of arms on it. And if, I mean, the neurology thing worked out. If any of our cousins are like into heraldry, because there are people like that out there, I would love to see the blazon for this coat of arms. Because I know there's like, there's a chevron ore on there. There's some quarterly. There's some bends. But I, I, I just, I like that stuff. And I don't have the time to research all like 12 elements to figure out what that all is. But if anybody could write out the blazon for that coat of arms, it would make me oddly happy. Uh, I would love it if you would tell me what any of those words mean, because <laughs> you're saying all that, and all I'm hearing is, wah, 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 wah. Those are made-up words. The, well, I mean, they are. <laughs> That's true. How can we make up words so we can have these crazy things and civilize <laughs> our houses? What, what? <laughs> Sorry, I'm doing a lot of impressions of older, drunk British guys today. It's just, I'm going through some stuff. <laughs> he enters Branson's room. Uh, he basically is, is telling him that he's ruining Sybil's life, which Branson does not agree with, obviously. Lord Grantham wants to know how he'll provide for Sybil, uh, which, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a journalist. He'll yeah. make some journalism money. <laughs> um, and so, finally, Lord Grantham had hoped it wasn't going to come to this, but he pulls out his checkbook and wants to know how much it's going to take to make this all go away. Branson is offended as well he should be. Yeah. He says, this is what's wrong with you people, that you think you have the monopoly on honor, and you, can, you cannot believe that uh, Sybil's happy, that, that Sybil could be happiest with him, mm-hmm. and that he cares about that, and, and everything like that. It's, uh, a, it's a great scene. Yeah. It's really well done. Yeah. Because Branson really is the only character in a position 
to criticize the upper class, mm-hmm. and he does it with with you know grace and you right. know, still he's, making his point. Yeah, I mean he's not you know like over the top about it or on you know I mean he yeah he just d- makes a very nice well argued case. <laughs> To which Lord Grantham responds poorly. <laughs> yes. He, he tells Branson he wants him out of the village, and Branson is like, really? When Sybil will come the minute that I call? When if I leave, she will depart that hour? And Lord Grantham... I'll get you next time, Gadget. <laughs> Lord Grantham arrives home, and Isabel finds him and tells him that they've been looking for him because his wife... <laughs> Is dying. He was like, oh, yes, I'm married. I always forget. But anyway, uh, Isabel lets him know that Mary's gone to meet Sir Richard at the train. Two more maids, uh, mystery servants, have been taken ill. He then awkwardly (laughs) says, which maids? No, Jane. (laughs) And Isabel, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Hughes is telling him that. I'm sorry, not Isabel. Yes, okay, Isabel was in there. Great. Uh, (laughs) Mrs. Hughes is like, no, not Jane. (laughs) Fucking weirdo. There are a bunch of people in the house putting up decorations for the wedding, which I hope they're getting paid overtime for their exposure to the Spanish flu. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Edith tells Lord Grantham, you know, the wedding hasn't been canceled, so they still have to prepare for it. Yeah. Also in the scene, Isabel is really taking full advantage of the new trend for more comfortable clothes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, hey, I, I support this. She ain't got to impress anybody. <laughs> Somewhere downstairs, Thomas is volunteering to help Mrs. Hughes set up the Armada bedroom which I'm fairly confident is the room that Major Bryant was in. It was, and we're curious if that's... Well, because she says she wanted Jane and Anna to set up the rooms for Sir Richard and his valet. Right. But she and Mrs. Hughes would be in Armada. Right. So I'm not... Because we had, we had speculated that Major Bryant, who was christened uh, by Cousin Lily on Twitter recently as Astash, yes. which is fantastic. <laughs> yes. So Mrs. Hughes was saying she was going to set up Armada, but that Jane or Anna should set up the rooms for Sir Richard and his valet. Okay. So we had thought that maybe the Armada bedroom was the same as Sir Richard's Maw of Hell room, which is also where Mr. Pamuk died. Right. So maybe not. Yeah. Which is a shame, because it would be nice if it was, you know, also Major Bryant. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's the trifecta of you. Yeah, right exactly. There. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes points out that he, she cannot pay him. He is not, in fact, a servant at Downton, but he says, call it rent, which... And then I said, rent, 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 we're not gonna pay rent, because I grew up in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I want to I rewrite rent to be about Spanish flu now. <laughs> and Downton Abbey. Good luck. Well, I'm gonna have a Kickstarter. <laughs> uh... Up in Lavinia's bedroom, which is lovely, by the way. I noticed the coverlet is this really pretty gold color and the walls are painted peach. Like, it's so much nicer than either Sybil or Edith's bedroom. (laughs) But Isabel tells Matthew and Lavinia that they have to postpone the wedding. And Lavinia asks Matthew to please call her father up and tell him not to come. Her father has a weak chest, apparently, so he shouldn't be exposed to the flu. Although, apparently, might not have been as much of a problem for him as we thought, according to uh, what you told us. Outside her room, Isabel apologizes to Matthew, and he says, oh, these things are sent to try us. And I'm like, "Uh, you mean Lavinia? (laughs) She's the one with Spanish flu. So you don't seem to be that put out, Matthew. (laughs) Lord Grantham comes into McGee's room, where she is 
not looking good. Mm-mm. And he asks why no one told him that she was like this. Uh, possibly because you were out harassing the chauffeur. That I think that is why. But Sybil tells him that she took a turn for the worse a half hour ago and, and wants to know where he was. And he replies he was out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because uh, a Sybil, of all people, he is not going to. Yeah, he's not going to give her the uh, the satisfaction of being like, oh, I was out trying to buy off your fiancé while my wife languishes in the throes of a deadly illness. Yes, failing to buy off. Uh-huh. O'Brien is applying cold compresses to McGee. She has been there all night and wants to stay with her through the worst of it. She She doesn't want to stop and take a break. Lord Grantham asks Sybil how McGee is. She says that they'll know more in a few hours. And uh, Lord Grantham says, my whole life gone over a cliff in a single day. Because Lord Grantham is always just amazed at how much everything is about him. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's like, look, no, it's like your sense of stability, maybe, your sense of worth. Like, your wife is the one whose actual life is at stake here. Yeah. And uh, your life hasn't gone over a cliff. It's hit a minor speed bump. Yeah. It, uh, he's the worst. <laughs> he I want a dartboard with his face on it. Like, he's just <laughs> so awful. He really is. In the servant's hall, Anna comes in for uh, another 15-second meeting with Bates. Well, I believe at the beginning of the scene is talking to the hall He boy. is talking to the hall boy. The rarely seen, much talked about hall boy. <laughs> there, but a bell rings and, and Bates tells the hall boy to go off and deal with it. So... Bates asks Anna how she's doing. This is a pattern with them. Bates asks Anna how Anna is doing. She gives him a report on what's going on with the Crawley family. No. This is weird to me. But anyway, <laughs> you know, but I mean, Anna, you know, Anna is emotionally connected to them. But she says, you know, McGee is worse. Bates does inform her that he has scheduled their wedding for Friday. There was a cancellation, apparently. So there was an opening at the clerk's office. The registrar's office. The registrar's, yes. Ethel shows up because of because <laughs> this is a harder one than I thought. <laughs> my hatred for Ethel runs deep. <laughs> Jane comes in and says, my favorite line that she said, those Bryants have turned up again. And then she's Ethel. And she's like, oh, that's why. <laughs> like she just totally gives her the side eye. <laughs> so that's hilarious. Yes. Mrs. Hughes comes into a room that we don't think we've seen before. No. But she says that there's, there's, uh, flu in the house or sickness in the house and so they the Granthams will not be joining them the Bryants this mm-hmm. being who she's talking to which they don't really care because they're not there to see the Granthams they're there to see Charlie the, the bastard the, the bastard bastard yes I'm just gonna pretend to be Mr. Bryant <laughs> bastard 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 ladies have been enough shocked for one thing <laughs> Ethel comes in with the bastard Mrs. Bryant is very taken with him says that she thought from the beginning that she looked like that he looked like Major Bryant. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Hughes says he's a stout little chap, isn't he? Which he is. Yeah, he's very stout yeah. and a chap. Yes. Um, no, he looks like a pretty solid baby. Like yeah. you could drop him a few times and not like have any damage. Yeah, like he looks like he will probably survive to adulthood. Yeah. So it's a good good thing in a baby. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mr. Bryant says, "Let's get down to business," because that's how we roll. Mm-hmm. Down in the kitchen, Daisy seems to be confused about what a fatal illness is. <laughs> yeah. Because Daisy's like, why would she die? And O'Brien's like, what do you think a fatal, what do you think happens with a fatal illness? The fairies come. <laughs> and I'm like, do they? <laughs> that would be cool. They like, didn't come for William. 
Well, he didn't have a fatal illness. He had a war injury. True. Mrs. Patmore compliments O'Brien on her her care of McGee, saying she's never seen such care. Mm -hmm. And then O'Brien kind of starts monologuing to herself about how she just wishes she could talk to McGee. There's something she wants to say. And then she just, like, breaks off and takes a tray out. And Mrs. Patmore is amazed. She says, you know, she's worked with her for 20 years, and she had... You know, you just, you don't really know people. You don't know them at all. And yeah. it's a nice little moment because yeah. they have clearly been working together for a while. And Mrs. Patmore hasn't lost her ability to be surprised. Yeah. Back up with the Bryants. Mr. Bryant says that his terms are that if they help Charlie and Charlie will come live with them and be raised by them, Ethel can never see him again. Ethel appeals to Mrs. Bryant saying, you know, she has a heart. She knows what what's being asked of her. But... Mr. Bryant says that, you know, in the world as it is, consider the two lives, uh, one raised by us, as he says at one point that he'll go to Harrow, perhaps, in Oxford, and able to do what he wants, marry who he likes, which I was like, uh... Really? Because nothing on this show has led me to believe that's true. I don't believe anybody in England can marry who he likes. Um, But in any case, or the alternative, the life of a bastard. And Mrs. Hughes finally puts a stop to it. She's like, hey, hey, hey. Stop saying bastard. We've heard that word enough for one day. And he says, very well, the nameless offshoot of a drudge. Which is worse. Yeah, this is, he was like, oh, can we go back to bastard now? <laughs> that was terrible. Um, uh, well, and they even suggest that Ethel could live at their house and, and care for Charlie and just not acknowledge him, not be his mother, but just be there with him. Right. But he, Mr. Bryant says that's a promise we all know you wouldn't be able to keep. Right. And I don't think he's right to disallow that option, but I think he's correct. I don't think there's any way. Yeah. Well, and it looks like, I couldn't be sure because I've divided Ethel's parenting in the past, but that baby always has a hat on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but under his hat, he does seem like he has red hair. Hmm. And... Yeah. It seems like the kind of thing that would be... Well, and just... It's just, you know, nothing specific to Ethel. Just how could you Yeah, no, as, as never... a person yeah. with a soul, yeah. how could you do that? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's really, like, the first shred of, of human empathy that Mr. Bryant has shown. I mean, mm-hmm. he does it in a really crappy way. Right. But he's at least saying, look, I know what it is to have a kid and to love a kid, and there's just no way mm-hmm. that you could raise it like this. Yeah. At this point, Anna bursts into the room to tell Mrs. Hughes that she needs to stand for Dr. Clarkson, that uh, for McGee. And Mr. Bryan says that's fine. They've said what they need to say, and they know how to reach the- them when Ethel has made a decision. I forgot to see if he was wearing socks. I think <laughs> you can see his feet. So if you know, please tell me, because I may not have time to rewatch it again. <laughs> Up in McGee's room, McGee is is sort of, it seems like maybe she's coming around a little bit, and she asks if, if that's O'Brien. It is O'Brien, as O'Brien has continued to not leave her side, and she, she starts telling O'Brien how good O'Brien is to her, and then O'Brien launches in and, and starts to ask forgiveness. She did something that she bitterly regrets, referring, of course, to the infamous soap under the tub incident. Yes. But then O'Brien quickly realizes that Mickey is actually delirious. You know, in whatever respect she's recognized O'Brien, she's not right. in her right mind. Yeah. So her her begging for McGee's forgiveness isn't quite going as she planned. Then Lord Grantham comes in and thanks O'Brien for her care and just makes her like this is all just making O'Brien feel worse. He's like, Oh, thank you for being so good and, and taking care of her no matter what happens, I'll always appreciate it, which is kinda nice. He's saying he won't blame her if she dies. Yeah. Yeah. 
And she's like, but you should have blamed me before. <laughs> Matthew comes into Lavinia's room. Uh, so this has been a marathon, but he has gotten a hold of everybody that was coming to the wedding and let them know that it has been postponed. And Isabel says that she shouldn't leave them alone, but as long as they don't tell. Yeah, which it, is very cute. Yeah. No, Isabel is quickly becoming a woman of the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think she always was very kind of forward thinking, but mm-hmm. I think the war in particular opened up her eyes to sort of how ridiculous some of the social mores are. Yeah, yeah. Like, who's going to have sex when they have Spanish flu? <laughs> Indeed. Matthew starts to talk about, he's been thinking about a date for the rematch, but Lavinia says that she thinks they're very lucky that they have been given a second chance to reconsider the decision that they're making. Because guess what? She heard everything with Matthew and Mary. She saw them kiss. She heard the whole conversation. And, you know, she tells Matthew that she she does love him, but she's not sure that this is the right life for her. She doesn't think she can be queen of the county. And she, you know, when he had been injured she thought that she would care for him uh in, in better than mary could well and she had been suspicious before he got wounded mm. of their relationship a little bit but then when he got wounded she was like okay this is fine right that, that that was the role that she felt would work for them but you know now now she's not sure matthew says but this is madness mary's engaged to someone else and lavinia says is she <laughs> Which is fantastic. And I was like, Lavinia, you speak for America. Yes. And by America, I mean Britain, and then a few months later, America. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so she she's kind of leaves it at that, asks to be to be left alone to rest, and Matthew biffs off. Yeah, maybe you can go find Lord Grantham and they can have a pity party. <laughs> Too many people love me. <laughs> it is a trial. So Richard has shown up, and he gives Mary a perfunctory kiss on the cheek, once again lending credence to Lavinia's opinion. <laughs> she, I love the way Mary is with Sir Richard, though. I know people don't like him, but I just love the way, like, everything she says to him is just dripping with disdain. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I don't know why you're here. <laughs> what do you think you could possibly do? Also speaking for Britain, and yeah. then a few months later, America. <laughs> uh, he said, since the chauffeur's gone, maybe he can drive. And Mary says, preferably over the chauffeur <laughs> zing yeah. boom uh but he asks after mcgee and mary is saying you know it doesn't look great and then he asks about lavinia mary then catches wise and says oh you're here because you think lavinia might die and matthew might fall into my arms and grief bone me and he says uh basically yeah, yeah. he says grief is a tricky disease Oh, I think he meant the Spanish flu. Oh, I thought he meant grief in that context. Well, maybe, I think they're both. Yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, look, and listen, Mary, I don't approve of Sir Richard's methods. <laughs> right. But for God's sake, quit quit giving him a reason to be crazy. Right. How dare you be jealous of me and the man I kissed last night? <laughs> So anyway, Thomas comes in and tells Mary that Lord Grantham is looking for her. And he has just sort of a moment, you know, Sir Richard is kind of like quietly like, ah, you know, foiled again. <laughs> but I'm like, I want to see Thomas and Sir Richard team up. Yeah. Like, that would be amazing. Yeah. I'm going to write that fanfic. <laughs> Not even like a shipping thing. Just like, oh, hey, we both have yeah. ineffectual schemes we want to do. The Edwardian League of Evil. Exactly. <laughs> the ghost of Mr. Pamuk. <laughs> 
down in the kitchen, uh, Mrs. Hughes suggests to Mrs. Patmore that they set up a kind of buffet dinner so that people can just go in and out, what with all the, you know, dying going on. Also, I'm so hungry. Like, that <laughs> scene made me so hungry. And she apologizes that that means extra work for Mrs. Patmore, but Mrs. Patmore says, you know, we've all got to pull together in times like this. Also, Daisy has received another letter. Thomas offers to take up tea to Sir Richard and to Mr. Carson. And everybody's all like, what? Thomas being nice? Blah, blah, blah. Which... I don't know why they're all so shocked. They don't they all understand that he's just trying to like not get kicked out. Like I don't think they do. I guess. But I think again that's a narrative economy thing. Yeah. Cuz yeah. at least Mrs. Patmore, she knows that that's what he's trying to do. He has much said so to her. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Daisy's letter is from or off Mr. Mason again. He wants her to visit him at his farm and she's not going to do it. She says, I'm not going to go to any farm. <laughs> and upstairs, Edith is like, good for you. <laughs> Farms only bring heartbreak. <laughs> Anna is making up Mary's bed and Mary comes in and Anna apologizes saying, oh, she didn't think she was going to want to change. And Mary says, I don't want to change. I'm just getting a handkerchief. Uh, then Anna asks if Mary can keep a secret and says, well, I know you can't. <laughs> yeah. She lets Mary know that she and Bates had planned to get married on Friday, and Mary tells Anna to go, despite all of the craziness that's going on. She'll cover for her. But Edith comes in then to tell Mary to come quick. Their mother has gotten much worse. Mm-hmm. And she has. She is writhing on the bed. She has started uh, bleeding from the nose. And Clarkson says it's, you know, hemorrhaging. It's not uncommon in these cases. And Grantham's like, you know, give it to me straight. He's like, well, if she makes it through the night, she'll live. So, yeah. Mary then takes Clarkson to see Carson. He tells Carson that McGee isn't well and that Miss Swire is not too bad, he thinks. And then Thomas comes in and is very obliging and nice. Once again, everybody confused by this. So then, then he leaves and Carson thanks Mary for coming up and apologizes to her. He says he, he knows that he has been a disappointment to her. And she, you know, basically forgives him. They're, they're back. In as much as Mary can forgive anyone. <laughs> right. He says something about how she has relied on his support and she says, I forget. What she th- says she's relied on his support for too long mm. and, you know, she she didn't think she could do without it. Right. And Carson says that she will always have his support. And she says that he will always have hers. And to that end, he should watch out for Thomas. Yes. Because uh, Mary appears to be the only person at Downton who knows what Thomas is up to, which is trying to get back on the staff. And she says he won't be content to be a footman forever, which, duh, we already knew that. Right. No, and I think this is, you know, the only time that Mary's gone to see Carson where Mary didn't need something. Yeah. So maybe she's growing as a person, or maybe she just didn't want to deal with Sir Richard Carlyle. <laughs> in the dining room, Thomas is there in his footman's livery, and Mary says that he looks very smart. And he says he still had the shirt and found his livery in the cupboard and thought, why not? Because, <laughs> like, Thomas's attitude through this whole thing is hilarious. It because is. it is not at all the attitude that he ever displayed <laughs> At any other point. And I totally understand because I've pulled this trick. Like, I know his scam. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm going to be, like, super helpful till I get what I want. And then I'll go back to my surly ways. <laughs> but anyway, Mary is is taking a plate from the buffet-style dinner and going, I think, to sit next to Edith. And Sir Richard says, I have a place for you here. Sit here. Don't sit by Edith. Sit by me, which yeah. is weird. He, well, he's been, there's a regular column in his newspaper entitled How to Be an Abusive Husband. <laughs> he's, he's been reading up on it. Uh, Matthew nearly spills the news about what Lavinia 
had said to him. No. Uh, then fortunately thinks better of it since Mary's fiance is in the room. <laughs> right. Uh, I understand he's under duress, but come on. Yeah. Sybil comes in and says, Matthew, Mary. And I have issues with that, which I'll get to in a minute. Yes. But she says Lavinia's gotten much worse. So what? Matthew runs out and Sir Richard catches Mary by the arm and says to stay and let Matthew go to Lavinia. She owes Lavinia that much at least. Uh, she pulls away and clearly doesn't care. Yeah. So here's my two things. Why did Sybil come in and say Matthew and Mary? Right. One other, I mean, like, Isabel's in the room. Like, yeah, wouldn't she care more? Yeah. But yeah, that's weird. And then um, it's just weird for Sir Richard to be talking about, you know, owing anything to Lavinia. Well, I mean, Mary is uh, breaking up her marriage. That's true. But I'm just saying because, you know, he thought Lavinia was a threat to him. I don't know. It's yeah. Just, it's just weird. It's, it, it is weird. It's weird that they had that plot with them and then for them to both be such a continual part of the show. Like, it's so strange. Yeah. In Lavinia's room, uh, Lavinia is very sweaty, not looking good. Dr. Clarkson is treating her and it's, he says it's, you know, gotten, you know, much worse that it's, it's a strange disease with sharp turns. Uh, he says, did, did she break up with anyone recently? That often causes this. Uh, he doesn't say that. But Lavinia tells Matthew that it's totally fine that she's dying, that because now he doesn't have to make a hard decision, and that she just wants him to be happy, that, that he, you know, and this is very much in clearly last dying words, yes. choking voice, that, you know, promise me that, promise you'll, me you'll be happy. And he says, but how could I be, ever be happy without you? Uh, and she's dead. Get a lot of reaction A lot shots. of reaction shots from everybody. And... and- I hate, hate, hate this development. I hate it so much. Agreed. Again, Zoe Boyle acts the hell out of it. I mean, yeah. she's so affecting. Tears running down my face. Right. Like, it's very affecting, but it's such a stupid, stupid, stupid plot device. Yeah. Lavinia so didn't deserve this. It's such a... Well, and it's such a... Like, of course, Lavinia's like the selfless martyr mm-hmm. in this scene, which is not... Like, again, thanks to the, the actress, like, she doesn't... She's sort of written as a selfless martyr, but mm-hmm. she always plays it like... A real human being yeah. with actual motivations. Right. Who's never heard of Julian Fellows. <laughs> right. And... And it just, like, it's just so convenient. Mm-hmm. It's what TVTropes.org calls death of the hypotenuse, <laughs> where you resolve a love triangle by killing somebody. Well, and look, and look, I've been in some shipping wars in my time, <laughs> and it can get very heated. And I mean, people who are shipping for certain characters always want the hypotenuse to die. <laughs> right. That's their immediate, they don't stop it, like, oh, maybe they can just break up, but nope, yeah. death, death first. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm a Matthew and Mary shipper in as much as I'm shipping anyone in this show. Right. Um, but, like, God. Well, and I mean, now that Lavinia is wanting to break it off herself, why not follow that? Why not let her live and... and- well, and because you would have to break, like... You would have to break off the idea that she was still in love with him, too. Which wouldn't be that hard, but it's not written that way. Right, because well... Because he's but- writing it like, oh... But she's saying, I mean, she's saying she doesn't want to marry him, whether yeah. in love with him or not. That's true, because he's not in love with her. Yeah. Anyway, these are our thoughts on Lavinia's death. We think she should have been permitted to live. Agreed. Uh, but we are not the music makers. We are not the dreamers of the <laughs> dreams. We are merely the casters of the pod. Indeed. 
So we next see Matthew uh, walking up toward Downton wearing his mourning armband. Comes inside and glares at all the servants taking down his wedding decorations, which it's definitely not happening now. <laughs> right. Uh, Lord Grantham comes up and says, my dear chap, which is what he always says when he wants to make sure Matthew knows that he loves Matthew more than anyone, even Jane the maid. <laughs> right. Uh, but he, he tells Matthew after he asks that McGee is doing much better. Uh, which I'm sure is just salt in the wound, yeah. you know? Like, if I were Matthew, I'd be praying at night, like, God, why? Why, Lavinia? Why not, McGee? <laughs> Her stupid face. She adds nothing to any of this. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham updates Matthew on the funeral prep and says that Mary was looking for him, but Matthew then reacts as if uh, Lord Grantham said, oh, this pustule-ridden beggar would like to see you. <laughs> but he won't see Mary, and then Lord Grantham tells Matthew that they've, they'd they like to send word to Lavinia's father that when he comes for the funeral, he should stay at Downton. Not at your pathetic hovel. <laughs> Uh, and that now brings us to another one of our recurring segments, Fashion Backwards, in which we'll learn a little something about the customs of the day from our own maven of mourning, Kelly. Yes, this is a very depressing edition of uh, Fashion Backwards. <laughs> I've been working really hard to get something as depressing as your World War One <laughs> overview, and this just might do it. Oh, boy. Uh, we're going to discuss funeral customs for the Edwardians. Um, this may be a little bit out of date by 1919, which is the time at which all of these are, are taking place. But I'm also going to assume they haven't changed that much. Okay. Um, the biggest thing that changed during the wartime funerals and post-war funerals was that there was a lot of extravagance associated with funerals, and that depended on your social class, what exactly that extended to. Which I'm familiar with from having acted in the play Oliver. I was just going to say uh, Oliver Twist, yes. although that would be Victorian. Right, right, right. But the the funeral customs actually were pretty similar. Mm -hmm. But so you went from, again, you know, this period of sort of ostentation, even among the lower classes when grief became a much more private, personal thing. Because in the face of the war, it was very hard to sort of balance. Like, you didn't want people to think that your death in the family was more important than a soldier's death, etc. Right. So I was really excited to find a, a paper, or I think an excerpt from a book, by Julie Marie Strange, Social History, Volume 27, this section is called She Cried a Very Little, Death, Grief, and Mourning in Working Class Culture, circa 1880 to 1914. Hmm. So this is right in the, the heyday of the Edwardian period. And we had mentioned while we were watching it, you and I, that we didn't see William's funeral. Right. So we don't know what happened there. Um, what I did find out is that the working classes preferred Sunday funerals that wouldn't interfere with their earnings. Uh, yeah. They didn't have to work, so they could go and, and make a day of it with right. the funeral. Interestingly enough, some municipal boards banned the practice of funerals on Sunday. And I'm not sure why that is. But I do know that, like, I think if you're Catholic in contemporary times, you can't get married on a Sunday mm -hmm. because you're kind of, like, hijacking the Lord's Day or something. Right, right. Uh, and, like, and I know you, like, you aren't supposed to get baptized on Easter Sunday, again, because it's like, hey, this is for Jesus. Calm down. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that really put a... a, a, a spoke in the wheel of the funeral so to speak because i mean you know you want to go and mourn and it was a huge for the underclasses in particular it was one of the only you know emotional outlets they had right uh, they weren't particularly demonstrative but it that was in part just because it wasn't a demonstrative time uh this paper dealt 
as you can tell from the title, it dealt a lot with, you know, whether or not the working class is actually grieved or not. And I didn't want to get into that too much. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the prevailing opinion seemed to be that the lower classes were less emotionally affected than the higher classes because of the fact that they didn't have as much money, which is weird hmm. and a strange hypothesis for anyone to espouse. But yeah. again, I didn't read it super closely, so that may not be what it said. Right. But that was definitely the impression that I got. Hmm. Working class families would have the process of laying out the body in their homes, in the parlor. Mm-hmm. There generally was a woman who oftentimes was also a midwife who would lay out the body for them. She would go clean the body and dress the body. That way the family didn't have to, to cope with it because obviously you're dealing right. with the, the emission of excrement during death and nobody wants that in their house and the bodies would frequently stay in the homes for up to a week Mm. and the the working class were reluctant to use public mortuaries or allow any post-mortem examinations of corpses because it did it would interfere with this custom of theirs because the custom of viewing the corpse was widespread and i mean this was just you know anyone would come by it was considered a mode of teaching children about death. I was reading about some kids, you know, anytime they heard about a death, they would go look at the body. Hmm. They were just fascinated by it. Yeah. And I was just reading some things, you know, because when the body first gets laid out, you know, it still looks okay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they weren't using any embalming techniques. So by the end of it, hmm. it was pretty rough. Wow. Uh, both visually and, you know, olfactorily. Yes. I also learned that no matter how poor they were, families would do everything in their power to rustle up black clothing because wearing mourning was considered a sign of respect. And Mm. it was very, very important to everyone in the lower classes that they have a proper, respectable funeral. Mm -hmm. It was a sign of respect for the people who knew the deceased and also for the deceased person, him or herself. A lot of times they would buy mourning clothes and then immediately pawn them afterward. Mm -hmm. Some would just wear their Sunday best with like a black tie and others would just attempt to dye clothes that they already had and dye them black. And they had varying degrees of success with that. Children, I was reading, this seemed like more of a middle class thing, so I don't know if it extended to everyone, but children would only wear a black armband. Children were not required to go into full mourning. Well, it makes sense just because children need more clothes anyway. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. more difficult and, you know, you have to change them frequently. Right. Uh, and the religious aspect of the working class funerals was very flexible. It wasn't based in doctrine. This is a very jerky practice of the Anglican clergy at the time. If a baby wasn't baptized, the Anglicans refused to bury it with an Anglican funeral. Mm-hmm. And they would, like, tell the parents, like, yeah, you won't see your baby in heaven. Yeah. Which is super cruel. Yeah. And in these cases, parents would seek out a nonconformist minister to perform some sort of spiritual service, mm-hmm. you know, the Unitarians of the day. Yeah. But what I thought was really striking was that these people didn't really care what the clergy had to say. Mm-hmm. They they had their faith and, you know, to them, you know, if a man died and, and maybe he was involved in some things that weren't so good, you know, maybe he earned his living selling things on the black market or whatever. Yeah. That didn't matter for his soul. What mattered for his soul, was he a good neighbor? Was he a good husband? It was much more caught up in, in the community. Yeah. Was he a good member in good standing with the community before he died. Mm -hmm. That was what mattered to God, they thought. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was all very interesting. Yeah. They they would have a funeral procession. It would not be as extravagant. The upper classes would have, you know, horses with plumes and carriages and stuff like that. But usually they would just carry the coffin by hand from the home to the cemetery mm. and you know the entire neighborhood would come out if somebody on your on your street died everyone would draw their blinds 
uh, uh, in solidarity to mourn with your family. Oh. And uh, after the funeral, they would have a tea. It wasn't a, a luncheon, as we've seen on Downton Abbey. They would just have a tea. And these were very, you know, it's it's the same as today. I mean, right, that was right. what was striking to me was just very, how very little funereal customs have changed. I mean, obviously, yeah. wearing mourning is no longer a big deal. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the social customs are pretty much intact. Yeah. Uh, we don't keep our dead in, in the parlor anymore, which <laughs> I think is good for everyone. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a very long standing. I think it actually had some roots in in some pagan ritual. So mm-hmm. the lower classes were very loath to give that up. Yeah. I also have some information about funerals and mourning etiquette. This comes from Jack's reference book, published in London in 1908. So this is kind of about halfway between the beginning and the end of the Edwardian period. Yeah. So after a death, you would have to write to all of your relations and intimate friends on a black-edged sheet of good note paper, a simple notice of the death, and then actual formal invitations for the funeral would follow in a couple of days. This practice did fall out a little bit with the introduction of the telephone. Mm. The dress of the chief mourners is, for ladies, woolen materials trimmed with crepe, and for gentlemen, black suits and ties, black gloves, and a plain black hat band. So if you had a hat band that was uh-huh. colored... You couldn't wear that. There was something called a widow's cap, which is sort of a a white knit cap that widows would have to wear uh, for at least a year. And I've seen some depictions in pop culture of women who just wore their widow's cap forever. Mm. Um, But they don't necessarily have to wear it right immediately after their husband's death. But they do have to wear their weeds, their Uh widow's uh weeds, which would be a crepe dress, a large black silk cloak, a crepe bonnet and veil, plain muslin collar and broad cuffs. So very dowdy. Deep mourning is your first mourning. This is what we would have seen Maggie Smith in in her first appearance way back in series one. Yeah. It's considered to be woolen fabrics and crepe, the crepe covering the dress completely for the first year. Even diamonds may now be worn with deep mourning. So you can still wear some of your jewelry there. Although in general, your jewelry was supposed to be jet something black Nothing too ostentatious. Right, right. Second morning is dull black silk or cashmere with or without crepe. You know, so the crepe is essentially to just obscure your body. It's very like sackcloth and ash. Okay. Uh, very strange. Half morning is black and white. Complementary morning is black without crepe. And it's not exactly clear when you go into those. And it's not really consistent with what we saw in Downton Abbey. Right. Um, so I, it's, I would have to do more research to find out exactly when it's delineated for you to kind of go in and out of these things. Well, I mean, that's one of those things that I'm sure was an ongoing process. Like, you know, peak Victorian was very set schedule and slowly was degenerating. It's true. Actually, I was also reading that if you didn't want to give up your social calendar, it was encouraged that you not do mourning at all. And there were actually many well-to-do, very well-bred families who just dispensed with mourning altogether. Mm. Uh, But the implication was that if you are going to go out and be social, not to wear your mourning. But it was an all-or-nothing proposition. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. you know, people would know if you were kind of half-assing it. Right, right. Like, oh, we saw you the other day and you were mourning, but then you were at this party and you weren't in mourning anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, it, it was kind of up to people's discretion. And again, since we're in Yorkshire, I'm assuming that they cling to the old practices a little bit more mm-hmm. closely. So here's the time of wearing mourning for specific individuals. For a wife, the widower should wear mourning for two years. 
For a husband, the widow should wear deep mourning for the first year, the crepe being gradually reduced during the next nine months and plain black for the remaining three. So, yeah, the women actually seem to have less of a mourning restriction yeah. than the men. That could potentially be because for women, having a husband was such an important part of, right. of survival. So maybe they wanted to get them back in the dating pool. So you could, when, when you see somebody that's like starting to wind down, you're like, okay, start my engines. Yeah. Well, and it may also have something to do with childbearing because there were a lot of young widows. Yeah. And I don't think anybody wanted to see them waste their childbearing years. Yeah. Uh, for a parent is 12 months of just plain black being worn all the time. And the same is true for a child. For a brother or sister, six months with half mourning during the last month. For a grandparent, nine months. For an uncle, aunt, nephew, or niece, three months. For a first cousin, six weeks. Also, a wife would mourn her husband's relations the same as her own. Just, you know, when you were married, it was assumed that you were part of that family. Right, right. So it seems like in Downton Abbey, when Patrick and um, his father died, what was his name? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Squinty McGee. <laughs> when they died, it seemed like maybe they were observing the three month, you know, uh, uncle or nephew mourning, mm. possibly. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what the time frame was. But from here, that would be what it should have been. Yeah. And I don't think that much time passed. Yeah. So, well, and wait, the Titanic well, was in April. Right. And then I think what, September was when the young Duke came? Sounds about right. Okay. So that's like five months, hmm. which is not an option in here. Yeah. But, well, you know, it may be, it may have changed in the four years since this was written. Right. And again, it seemed like people could kind of play willy nilly with it. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that's your basic funerals and mourning okay. in Edwardian times. All right. Well, thank you. Up in Carson's bedroom, Mrs. Hughes asks him if he's feeling more himself. Uh, he is, he is starting to feel better. And he is, we'd heard about Lavinia and he is sad about it, uh, which Mrs. Hughes is surprised at, which I mean, A, like, he's a human being. Yeah, but like, he hasn't been kind of a jerk lately. Uh, fair enough. They haven't really been on the same page. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but he's, you know, he's not a monster. He is sad that Lavinia is dead. Yeah, he, he's not a shipper. <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham is up in McGee's bedroom and telling her that she gave them a fright. And uh, she tells him that she also heard about Lavinia and would like to attend her funeral if she can. She then holds out her hand and says, we're all right, aren't we? And then she starts talking about how she like feels like she neglected Lord Grantham and she hopes like that they're fine. And he's like, yeah, we're fine. All of which would make sense if she knew he was stuffing with the maid. Right. Which, you know what, in theory... and. Like, I don't think any of this happened because we didn't see any of it. But between what Carson has seen and between Mrs. Hughes having heard Lord Grantham be oddly interested mm-hmm. in Jane and everything else, like, it's not inc- inconceivable that the servants could have put it together. True. But, you know, I don't really think that's what happened here. Just Cora somehow knows. Mm-hmm. Which it's is, her woman's intuition. Yeah. While she was fighting for her life. Anyway, it was a little odd. Ethel comes into Mrs. Hughes's parlor and uh, says that she has reached her decision and that she is keeping Charlie, that, you know, what could be better for him than a mother's love? Mrs. Hughes says, okay, she will let the Bryants know. And Ethel says, but you think it's the right decision, right? And she says, my opinion has no place in this. And I'm not even sure what her opinion is. Mm-hmm. She plays, I mean, because she really does mean, she really feels like, I, I think her feeling is, it's a tough decision. 
I don't know what I would do in that situation. Whichever you think is right, she'll she'll back no, her up. No, and I I think I was I was honestly a little surprised, but Mrs. Hughes is totally like supportive. I, I think she's honest. Yeah, and I think she thinks there would be advantages to him living with the Bryants, and I think she also thinks there would be advantages to him living with Ethel. So yeah. And I think, honestly, she's just spent so much time with this that she probably wants to be done with it. <laughs> well, yeah. Next, we cut to Rippin'. <gasps> We're Rippin'. finally in Rippin'. It's everything I hoped it would be. Yeah. No, we start off with a very, I, I don't know if it's like a, kind of like a fisheye wide angle lens shot up at like the government building mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's like a very imposing shot. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Bates and Anna get married. It's kind of a weird scene. Yeah. Like, they're, you're getting their vows, like, superimposed over the action. Like, I guess you have to kind of cut down on time. Right. But we learn that Anna's name is Anna Mae Smith, which is very cute. Yes. Uh, and uh, John Bates appears to not have a middle yes. name. Yes. So, yeah, so they get married, and it would be so cute if I didn't hate Bates so much. <laughs> Indeed. Lord Grantham is sitting in his library, and Jane comes in. Lord Grantham was looking for Bates or something. But anyway, he he asked Jane to stay because he'd been looking to contrive a meeting with her, but now here she is. Jane says, I'm glad McGee is better. Meaning like, yes, I wasn't hoping for your wife to die so that we could be together. And she says something about everything turned out all right or something, and he says, for now. And she says, don't worry, I'm almost packed. I've given my notice. And Lord Grantham is like, Good. <laughs> That's exactly why I wanted to contrive a meeting. Yeah, when he was like, well, because I think because before he's like, no, 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 you won't. I won't let you lose your job over my wrongdoing or whatever. But now he's like, oh, you know what? I'm fine with it now. But he 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 supposes it's for the best, and then he goes to his desk, gets an envelope, and gives it to her. He says, "This is the name and address of my man of business. He will handle the payoff." Uh, she says, no, 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 but he says it's for Freddie, and it would make him very happy if she would accept it and to know that Freddie will be all right. And she says, well, if it'll make you happy, that's all I want. And she asks to kiss him before she goes, which he uh, does not need to be talked into. Yeah, so they kiss, and she's crying, and I'm not. Yeah. Don't care. Yeah. You know, and again, with more screen time for this character in this relationship maybe there could have been some investment in it but there wasn't and there isn't Mm -hmm. yeah so so long jane we hope gwen comes back i wish gwen had a twin sister (laughs) who wanted to be a housemaid and then like she would come in and her name would be guan (laughs) like guan 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 stay tuned uh, that's who Shirley MacLaine's playing, right? <laughs> Up in, in Mary's room, Anna's doing Mary's hair, and Mary says, the secret Mrs. Bates. <laughs> and Anna says that, you know, she and, and Bates will tell everyone they're married once the funeral is over, because unlike Sybil, Anna actually knows how to not steal somebody's thunder. Yeah. Mary says that she and Bates will have to control themselves, and Anna says they have lots of practice. Then Mary stands up and tells Anna to follow her, as she takes her to a room that Jane has done up specially for Anna and Bates to do it in, which is really nice. It's Jane's leaving present. It is. It is really nice. Well, and at first I was like, you know, Mary couldn't possibly make up a room herself. And yeah. then she says, oh, Jane did it. Which at first I was like, ugh, Mary, these pathetic upper class. But then she points out that what I didn't realize was that, of course, Jane would have noticed anyway, since she shares a room with Anna. Yeah, So that's Jane true. had to be in on the secret regardless. Ah, good point. Yeah. 
Carson comes into the Carson cave at last after a long absence, and he finds Thomas there. He says that he had come down to check on the silver, and Thomas says, I think you'll find I've cleaned all the pieces we need. And not to worry, we're going to take care of everything. It's all going to go great. Carson says he wishes he had a way to express his gratitude. And Thomas says, I'm sure you'll find a way. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Over in Mrs. Hughes' parlor, Mrs. Hughes is squaring Jane's wages. And she says that she will miss Jane because she is a good worker. Jane says it's all for the best. And Mrs. Hughes says when all said and done, she agrees with her. Which leads me to believe that Jane had to tell Mrs. Hughes the real reason that she was leaving. Possibly. Or again, whether she could have just figured it out from what Lord Grantham said or just had a suspicion. Or also, she could be thinking, you know what, now that the war's over, we can finally get a replacement ginger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We now cut to a scene that I have to describe. It's the gross post-coitus of Anna and Bates. Yes, it is. People love Bates. I never wanted to see him with his shirt off. No. Now Uh -uh. I have. And she says, well, you've had your way with me, which is very cute and great, as Anna always is. And his response is, I hope you won't live to regret it. And, uh... Like, this is the worst first time story of anybody like we we've debated whether we think maybe anna's had sex before right she seems pretty placid yeah um i don't know it's 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 hard hard to to see how she could have but it's just also just something about her air and her attitude yeah she seems very fine with everything yeah and basically anna uses her new position as his wife to tell him to shut the fuck up for christ's sake and can they have one goddamn night together without all this gloom and doom no i mean seriously (sighs) if i had gotten married to you and you'd been like oh you know i was like oh like what a nice wedding and you were like oh i hope you won't live to regret it i'd be like it's been five minutes dude that's like seven year rich stuff (laughs) yeah yeah she does say that she doesn't say it as passionately or angrily as we do well she has to stay married to the guy yeah but good lord bates Mm mm-hmm we cut to the priest stirring dirt on Lavinia's coffin. Oh, which features a nameplate, which I didn't mention in my segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was very in vogue at the time to put the person's name on the coffin. And uh, frequently people in the lower classes would, you know, kind of go into debt a little bit to make sure that they could do that for the coffin. Mm. Anyway, he says some Bible stuff, you know, pretty standard ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. <laughs> Everyone's wearing black and is very sad in accordance with the custom. <laughs> and uh, Mary asks at the end of the service for Carlisle to give her a moment with Matthew. And he says, of course, which is a vastly different tune than he was singing not very long ago. Yeah. I'm like, where's all the arm grabby? Where's the shaking? Where's the blackmail? This isn't like you, Sir Richard Carlisle. Oh, he's uh, cooking something up. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes is, is walking away with the servants from the funeral. She says they'll have to hurry to get everything ready for the post-funeral tea the luncheon (laughs) yes anna says that mrs patmore and thomas have gone ahead in the trap and that they'll take care of everything mrs hughes says something along the lines of i bet thomas will take care of everything but carson says she should stop dreaming that they'll ever get shot of thomas now isn't that his call you would think but whatever uh daisy sees mr mason who is at the cemetery at william's grave so she goes over to see him, and uh, she, you know, she cries. Well, he's, like, been grave-stalking her. He's, he, he keeps saying, like, oh, I keep hoping I would see you here someday. 
And then, like, she starts crying because obviously she's never gone to see William's grave. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, it does me good to see how much you loved him, which only makes her cry harder. Yeah. At Lavinia's graveside, Mary tells Matthew that he must tell her she can do anything. Matthew then reveals that Lavinia saw them together, saw them kiss, saw the whole thing. Mary starts apologizing. Matthew tells her Lavinia's horrible secret that uh, she knew that Mary loved him, that they shouldn't get together and they should call off the wedding. And he thinks that Lavinia died because of a broken heart and because he could never be with Mary now because they murdered Lavinia, which is the dumbest shit I've heard on this show to date. (laughs) That includes everything Bates has ever said. Wow. Yeah. And Mary's like, no, 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 of course. We absolutely killed her. (laughs) Definitely our fault. I'm like, guys, it was the Spanish flu. It was the Spanish flu. Even if she'd had a broken heart. Because like Matthew's like, oh, she gave up. She didn't. I'm like, no, her heart stopped beating. That's what causes death. No, she'd, she'd offered something that she wanted to do. Like she was, again, this was her initiative, this whole thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's the one who called it off. Julian, Julian Fellows, would you please give Lavinia credit for knowing her own mind? Boom. Anyway, speaking of people who don't give anyone credit, Sir Richard <laughs> walks over and he apologizes to Matthew about Lavinia's death and he offers to walk Mary to the house and Mary says, yes. I want you to. She's yeah. like, I'm going to make a go of it for, for Lavinia that I killed. They walk off. I imagine Sir Richard says, you know, Mary, you've, you're getting fat. I often reflect on the fact that no man could ever love you. <laughs> <laughs> no! It's all from the column. Uh, Lord Grantham sees Sybil talking to Branson and asks, why, why are you here? Sybil says that she is going to Dublin in a day or two, and she wishes that they could part friends. And Lord Grantham gives in. He says he won't quarrel with them. He gives them his blessing. He says that perhaps we should let this be Lavinia's last gift to us to remind us what really matters. I'm like, yes, Lavinia died for you, Lord Grantham. <laughs> what a jerk. Um, he tells Branson that if he mistreats Sybil, he'll be torn apart by wild dogs. <laughs> Does yeah. he even know any wild dogs? All he's got is Isis. <laughs> she seems pretty tame. Yeah. <laughs> Isis is too classy to tear anyone apart. <laughs> Sybil asks if Lord Grantham will come over for the wedding. He, he doesn't know right now. He says there will be a little money, though not as much as there would have been. Doesn't seem like it makes that much of a difference to me. Yeah. Um... So, so Sybil and Branson walk off, and the Dowager Countess walks up, and you know, they says, "Well, you've, you know, Lord Grantham's given in, uh, and that she's basically approves of it at this point." She says, "We haven't. The aristocracy hasn't gotten where they are by being inflexible or intransigent, I think, mm-hmm. and that you just have to make the best of the situation." And she immediately starts going through her plans. She's like, well, he's a writer, so that looks good. And I believe there's a family named Branson that lives in Dublin near so-and-so. Near Cork. Near Cork, right. And uh, surely we can make something out of that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. The servants come back from the funeral, and Mrs. Patmore tells Mr. Bates that two men are waiting for him in the servants' hall. He goes in and is arrested for the charge of willful murder. Hurrah! (laughs) Uh, Anna says, no, this can't be right, but Bates doesn't put up a fight predictably and is let off by the officers. We get a shot of Anna looking stricken. Poor Joanna Froggett. She's so good in this role. She is. And all she has to do is just sit around and moon over the least charismatic lump of clay on this earth. Yeah. 
Like, I I would rather have seen an Anna Thomas storyline been going on all yeah. these seasons. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that is the end. That's yeah. the end of Series 2. Yeah. Uh, we're not counting the Christmas special as Series 2 proper. Right. As a series finale, this is not as good as the first one. Agreed. Because, like, World War One is a great cliffhanger because it's kind of vague and, like, whatever. But, yeah. like, you know, the only cliffhanger here is, like, oh, Bates got arrested. Uh, all right. Yeah. Matthew Mal- Lavinia won't be together. Sybil's marrying Branson. McGee's not dead. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, Sybil and Branson was the only thing that really got resolved. Yeah. And just like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Not with a not with a bang, but with a whimper. Yeah. Went series two. <laughs> Indeed. But considering the sort of ups and downs of series two, and like, you know, don't get us wrong. We love the show. Right. We love watching it, but just some really bad choices were made, and yeah. I just really hope that this kind of soapy melodrama can be avoided yeah. in the third series. And I love soapy melodrama, but, you know, for a purpose. Right. So that brings us to the Abbey Awards. That's right. So for Gibson Girl, I've decided to award it to McGee for her black netted dress. Okay. Uh, I've been wanting to reward her for it all series, and I haven't yet, and I really want her to uh, to get a little credit for that. She also made uh, Dying of Spanish Flu look very sexy. <laughs> Next up, we have Best Evasion. Well, um... Thomas evaded getting kicked out of Downton. Again. Right, that's true. Pretty pretty handily. Uh, Lavinia evaded... Uh, a, a hard decision, yeah. apparently. So there's that. Uh, although that... I mean, really, really the evasion there is on the part of Julian that's Fellows. True. By evading having to actually resolve this conflict. Uh-huh. Well, he can't ever write an actual confrontation. It's yeah. always, I can't believe you just confronted me about this. <laughs> yeah. Jane evaded inevitably getting knocked up by Lord Grantham. Yeah, that's which true. Which is clearly where that would have gone, since <laughs> no one who has sex can go without being punished on this show. Yeah. Ooh, maybe that's why Bates got arrested. <laughs> that is an excellent point. I think uh, I think Julian Fellows. I yeah. think that was a big fat evasion. It was. I just and just when I thought something was going to get interesting, he kills off Lavinia, and oh, so we're not going to deal. Oh, okay, fine. cool, yeah, great. We're just okay. Hey, uh, hey, uh, let's go um, spend more time with uh, Lord Grantham. Yeah, because he's so interesting. Anyway, not congratulations, Julian Fellows. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Lord Grantham, he takes best overbite in this episode oh. for being so uh, intransigent <laughs> and annoying yes. and upper class. So, uh, well done. I think it's one of the, the first Abbey Awards he's won. Oh, so. yeah. I think you're right. Uh, which brings us, of course, to everybody's favorite award, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. I've, I think it's a five again. Holding steady at five. Yeah. And in strong. Way to go, Mags. Yeah. I yeah, like I mean, to think I like to think that she berates Julian Fellows about her plot lines. <laughs> I like to think that the market increase in her awesomeness came after, you know, the episode we gave her like a one in and she yeah. was like, You have to give me more to work with <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean it's great. She ends her last lines of the the, the series two are some of her best mm-hmm. with talking about how she can make something out of Branson. Mm-hmm. Uh she's very you know, she clearly thinks Sybil is making the wrong decision and she advocates for it, but she's totally reasonable and calm about it. Yeah, none of the reasons that she thinks it's a bad idea aren't actually bad reasons. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh yeah, just very good all around. She doesn't take it as a personal affront. She uh, like she, some people she, she overbitey ma- people I could mention. <laughs> yes. She makes that crack about cholera. Uh-huh. 
Oh, man. It was a great time. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we go, I forgot to do this earlier, but uh, Cousin Jody Lynn had a birthday last week. That's right. And she requested that I do a birthday greeting in my McGee voice. So let me just... Happy birthday, Jody Lynn. Many happy returns. If you lived nearer to us, we would take you out for luncheon in the country. <laughs> <laughs> So, happy birthday, Jody Lynn. We hope it was great. Happy birthday, indeed. And uh, that wraps up our recaps of Series 2. We'll be back next week with our roundup of the Christmas special. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, so, until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. in your pipe and smoke it.
put that in your pipe and smoke it. Oh, oh. <laughs>